0: Good evening, everybody. Stephen Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Yes, broadcasting you to you from that time in life where we are
1: thrilled
0: to be spending our Saturday nights doing philosophy. Oh yeah, baby! I used to pay for this in college, and now, well, actually, to help the show survive and thrive, freedomainradio.com/slash/donate. Sign yourself up for what is it, twenty bucks a month to bring. Tens of millions of javelin spears of philosophy straight into people's neofrontal cortex, exploding the planet into moral progress. What is that? 80 cents a day, 70 cents a day. Mike, you've done the math. It's pretty good, right? Pretty cheap. Pretty cheap way to get philosophy out there to sign up for a little subscription. Yeah, Five
2: dollar subscription, sixteen cents a day. Ten dollar
0: subscription, thirty-two cents a day.
2: Twenty dollar subscription, sixty-four cents a day. Fifty dollar subscription, dollar sixty-one cents a day. And
0: hundred dollar $1 subscription, cents a day. Sorry, hundred dollars.
2: <laughs> hundred dollar subscription is three dollars and twenty-two cents per day.
0: Yeah, so we really, really appreciate that. We really need what you have to offer, and we promise to to put it to good use. So, uh, Mike, who do we have on first? All right. Up first today is
2: Elan. He wrote in and said, Why can't other value systems, i.e. God, achieve
0: the same outcome as UPB? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not laughing. It's a great question. It's just that there's, there's so much that's embedded and built in to your statement that um, I'm happy to have you parse it out a little bit, more? Yeah. Or not? Yeah, go ahead. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean? Uh,
3: yeah, sure. Uh, first, I'd like to thank you for uh, inviting me to the show. But uh, what I mean by that is uh, my son is a great uh, advocate of, your, of yours. And uh, he subscribed to, to the values in the system you mm-hmm. are uh, championing. And uh, But I told them, in my religion, I feel we can achieve the same thing. The, the outcome is the same. The reason for the outcome is different. But the outcome, we can actually achieve exactly the same thing.
0: All right.
3: Now, um, he, he fiercely uh, yeah, uh, didn't agree with me.
0: Right. Now, um, you have used some... Language that is mildly inflammatory, which is not the end of the world. I just really wanted to point out that I've noticed. So you said that he subscribes to the belief systems that I champion? Yeah. Oh, oh. So if, oh, if, if, a, if, if a, a teacher I made a hang, mistake. On, hang on, hang on, hang on. So if a teacher says to your son that two and two make four, does he subscribe to the correctness of the belief system that she is championing, or does he just accept that his teacher is right?
3: No, no, my son is a reasoned person. He will think for himself and he will not. Right, but what I'm saying is that, look,
0: people don't subscribe to my beliefs. At least I hope nobody subscribes to my beliefs. (laughs) Any more, you know, not to put myself in too illustrious a company, but, but any more than I subscribe to Albert Einstein's opinion about the constancy of the speed of light, right? Okay. Like I, I make a rational argument, either the argument holds or it doesn't. But when people personalize my arguments, I know that they're coming from a place of irritation with me, uh, an annoyance with me, which is it sounds like where you're coming from, which I can perfectly understand and I have no problem with. But I think we should at least be honest about that, that there's something about what I'm doing that is is bothering you, right?
3: No, I think you're having a fair point, and it's a mistake the way I put it.
0: Well, maybe. (laughs) Maybe it's a mistake, or maybe it was something that was intended to communicate something. But in general, when people do not respond to an argument, but instead personalize the argument, like, Steph, your philosophy or your belief system or your whatever, championing of UPB or whatever, What they're doing is they're trying to make my belief system sound charismatic and therefore subjective. Because I have some charisma and some reasonable sense of humor and reasonable eloquence and so on. And so the only way, if my belief system was just mine and personal and was subjective, then the only way it could spread is through entertainment, through sophistry, through charisma, through humor, through manipulation, right? Right. So the moment that people start personalizing my belief system, what I experience uh, and what I think is actually happening is they're saying, Steph, your arguments are bad. Your show is only successful. Your arguments are only successful because of your eloquence and charisma, but they don't actually address the, the arguments. And I just, we don't have to delve into that. Uh, I just really wanted to, to point that out, that there is something that, that bothers you about what I'm doing, I would assume.
3: I uh, first, I agree with what you're saying. I'm um, you just like to reiterate. I made an, an error the way I described it. I absolutely agree with you. Okay. And I, th- I think, uh, and then I ha- absolutely 100% convinced and know he's doing it on the basis of his reasoning. and And the way he talked to me, I absolutely agree with you.
0: Okay. All right. So your question is, if I understand it. Um, you have a belief system that arrives at the the major bans that universally preferable behavior, which is my advocacy for secular ethics. It arrives at the same major four bans, uh, the ban on rape, uh, on murder, on theft and on assault, but through a different methodology. Is that right?
3: Yeah. Hang on. So, so the outcome will be the same, but the point of the reference why I do it will be different. Okay. I, I so, because, because the point of what I – the foundation are deriving my – the outcome is different to yours.
0: No, I, I understand that. So then there's there's two possibilities I'm going to put forward. Obviously, you can tell me if there's more or fewer. So it's one, of, it's one of two things. I don't know if you – do you ever use like a GPS or anything like that? Yeah. Okay. So in the GPS, you can put in options. Like if I want to drive from here to Detroit, let's say, <laughs> for some reason. Um, I, I like watching smoldering financial wreckage uh, light up the evening sky. Now, I, my GPS will say, do you want um, – the fastest route, or do you want a route that avoids tolls, let's say? Like, it'll give me some options about which route I'm going to take. Now, neither one of those is right or wrong, right? If if I have a little bit more money, I may want to pay some tolls and shorten my driving. If I have less money, I don't want to spend it, then I'll avoid the tolls and pay more for my drive. Now, if you and I... End up in the same place morally, but the methodology is simply kind of like personal preference, but it's still kind of objective. Like how the GPS works is still objective, then I don't see any particular problem. However, if the methodology that you're employing is not rational or empirical, then we have a problem because it doesn't matter if you end up with the same conclusions if your methodology is not rational or is anti-empirical, then you are not correct, right? Even if you end up with exactly the same uh, answers as I do, um, then if your methodology is not rational or empirical, you are absolutely incorrect, because philosophy is not about the answer, it's about the methodology. And the correctness is not in the answer, the correctness is in the methodology. So there's an old philosophical problem, I'll be very brief here, but there's an old philosophical problem where... Um in Canada there's a um a prison called Kingston and of course in I think Jamaica there's a uh, a town called Kingston um and if I if somebody says to me you know what's a major town in Jamaica but for some reason what I hear is what's a major prison in Canada and I say Kingston well that is technically or or in terms <laughs> of the the, the, sh- the sounds it is the correct answer but I'm wrong even though I've said the right words I'm wrong because I'm answering the wrong question. And so my question then to you is, well, what is the methodology that you're using to arrive at ethics um, that would be obviously different from from what I'm doing?
3: Okay. Uh, first time we want to start is when I read uh, the universal uh, preferred behavior, there's two things are distinct there to me. One, it's very hard to manipulate it because it's a clear cut. You can you can't uh, hijack it and use it for bad things because it's really, really articulate really well and it's very hard to do so. The but uh, what I'm saying, when I when you come to God, it is easy to hijack it and in the name of God to do bad things. That's I agree. And that's the difficulty I have with then it's to articulate a the, con- the value of God. no uh, uh, if somebody understands it in the way, uh, or the way I understand it, it's very hard from there onward, because knowing God and try to animate it or to uh, uh, follow the attribute or, or or trait of God, it's you will come to the same outcome as you guys or or. To what you try, what you and then try to explain to me, in a sense of a, a complete renunciation of any kind of violent
0: behavior. Towards no, I, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but uh, I'm guessing from your accent that we mostly have in common the Old Testament. Yeah. And <laughs> if, that is the, yeah, if that is the case, you've got to go out on a limb sometimes. <laughs> but if that is the case, I don't see how we can use a God... Uh, to be even remotely compatible with a ban on murder. Because in the Old Testament, as I'm sure you're aware, God is a fairly trigger-happy ghost, right? I mean, he, you know, he's calling in massive airstrikes, continent-wide burnings, uh, and so on, and uh, is, is initiating against the innocent, even against the unborn, even against the unborn uh, death. Uh, particularly, of course, the most obvious example is is the flood uh, of uh, uh, of Noah, right? Where uh, God is so angry at people. I believe the biggest sin they have is having false idols before Him, which means giving money to the wrong priests. But um, <laughs> uh, he he calls, I mean, he calls in a universal flood that slaughters everyone except one family and the animals, and then he creates a rainbow according to the story to say, "Whoa." I'm never doing that again. It's like, well, so so if you have, as the originator of your morality, of "thou shalt not murder," a mass murderer, then it's hard to see how bringing God into the mix clarifies or extends the ban simply against murder in any way, shape, or
3: form. Okay, the, uh, I tell you my uh, answer to that. There's the, the two uh, facets into the answer. The first. And the easy one, in my opinion, when we're talking about killing and death in the Bible, we're talking about people are uh, uh, are what you call ethically uh, negative so uh, so any person are in that zone of ethically negative, the metaphor the Bible uses is death. Because God is not an intervening God. If you are uh, outside of the zone of uh, ethically positive, you are now, in et- and you're actually doing something active, you are now move yourself into ethically negative, and that's a, the metaphor in the Bible is death, and there's a 23 p- a permutation of them. So if you, if you want, we can expand on that, but there is a 23 approximately type of a a category of being in ethically negative. So if you go to every type of death, you will see they're addressing a particular kind of aspect, how you getting to a a ethically negative. The second thing is is that um, when the the issue with the with the Bible and, and God is never attempt to be a best seller. So uh, and then and when we, me and Dan speaking on the universal uh, preferred behavior is much more easy to understand, where God is much more difficult to understand. In, in a sense, Okay, of, okay,
0: hang on. Just just before we pile too much theology onto my little cactus of reason <laughs> and squash <laughs> it completely. Um okay. You said that God is not an intervening God? No. It's a value. So how do we, how do we know he exists if he didn't ever intervene?
3: Okay. So there's, if you give me about 30 or 40 seconds, I will go with it. The, yep. uh, the way I understand it, then okay, I can be wrong, uh, is that uh, to know God, that's mean that when I say God, it's mean unconditional truth or reality of truth. So that means truth with no condition in it. To understand wait, wait, wait. That, hang, on. hang
0: on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Are you saying that you're using God as a synonym for philosophical truth?
3: No, not in the way you guys are using it. It's a slightly different. Because I, I, the way then using it and the way I understand the argument come, it's very different. It's a but no, dude. it's a value. You, you can't... You can't
0: say that God that, that truth is a synonym for God that's begging the question, plus it's circular plus it's a tautology okay. right so because I- because my question my question didn't have anything to do with the definition of God. you said God is non intervening, but if God is non intervening, then he would never have dictated uh, any of his desires or wishes or commandments, or he would never have interfered and sent locusts or or um, uh, fire, or water, or floods, uh, he never would have handed Moses the tablets, he wouldn't have uh, done any of the, he wouldn't have interfered with Job, uh, he wouldn't have interfered with Abraham, he wouldn't have inspired Moses to, be, like, the entire Bible is based on, and is predicated, Old Testament and New, on the fact that God is kind of meddling in things, because if he was completely non-intervening, we wouldn't have any stories about him, or any idea what he wants, and he wouldn't even respond
3: to prayers, Right. Okay. First is not responding to prayer. The respond to prayer, you pray. That's the respond to prayer. Pray does not get any fruit out of it or benefit out of it. It's, it's the same thing as you. Uh, if I adhere to uh, ethically positive, I will not ex- as a value. It's not a mechanism to make myself better. Uh, so the, in a key issue there is that. Uh, God is not—it's only ethical I- imperative things I need to do. That's knowing God. Otherwise, there's nothing to know. It's any other value system, human uh, humanity have. So, to, now when we say God intervening in the Bible, it's a metaphor. If you see the Bible as a as a bunch of historical facts, that's the erroneous view of looking at God. It's not a bunch of historical fact. It's a it's a philosophy in a sense of a, a, a what I need to learn from it today, not what's happened in the past.
0: Okay, it's but the Bible... Bible no, 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 listen, listen. The Bible is not a philosophical document. Right, because a philosophical document has to have... Uh, Premises syllogisms maybe even some axioms thrown in it has to have arguments that are rationally constructed with reference to evidence it has to have universalities it generally doesn't have instructions on how to keep your slaves Uh, it doesn't have instructions on the right price to ask for your daughter's sale into sexual slavery. It generally doesn't have instructions on exactly how many women uh, you should rape and how many men you should murder when you conquer a foreign town. Uh, These are not, the Bible is, is not even remotely a philosophical document. I mean, compare it to something like Alcibiades and and, um, Socrates and others' conversations uh, in the Platonic Dialogues or even compare it to some of Nietzsche's work, which is, again, quite allegorical. But I think that we can't reasonably make the case that the Bible is a philosophical document because it places at its center a rather petulant and violent imaginary being who issues commandments upon threat of infinite torture and death. Not so much in the Old Testament. I know that's more something that uh, our friend Jesus brought in the New Testament. But uh, do what I say, or I'm going to blow up your sheep, uh, make your wife leave you, make your kids sick, give you um, uh, endless boils as in the story of Job and so on. That's not a philosophical argument. I mean, if if I said, listen, man, you have to agree with me, or I'm going to burn down your house. uh, Nobody would say, well, that's a that's a pretty good philosophical argument. I hadn't really thought of arson as the way that we should, you know, bring this to bear. That would be like, wow, what a crazy guy. He's so weirdly insecure, that he has to make unbelievable threats against people in order to get those people to accept his position, which, of course, wouldn't be an acceptance of position, but rather a bowing down to my threats of violence. So, uh, you know, if if the Bible is a metaphor, that's fine. But if the Bible is a metaphor, then God is a metaphor, and if God is a metaphor, then I don't even then then we're looking at a work of fiction, uh, which simply we would use to understand the weird psychology of people five thousand years ago, rather than any kind of truth that they would bring to bear on us ethically today.
3: No, the The to understand the psychology of people who have written the Bible, it is. Uh, the three thousand years old or two thousand eight hundred years old, it is. Uh, it's been designed and written by people from that era, but the thing is, is that it is a metaphor. Yes, and um, and the fundamental issue there, uh, Stefan, is that that it also serves as an educational tool as well. And in an educational tool, there is an acceptance to allow. the people to follow the outcome for the wrong uh, uh, not from the best reason, not, not from the sake of uh, adhering to the value, but from getting benefit or preventing punishment. And I understand the psychology of it mm-hmm. And but that's kind of belief in God it, I hope it will not be the discussion here because that's not interesting because that's not I think how it's originally intent to be, because to get out Okay, but hang on. So, sorry, to interrupt, it, sorry to interrupt. Sorry, interrupt. Sorry, interrupt.
0: If if the Bible is an educational document, can you tell me something that the Bible can teach me that does not rely on allegory and does not rely on threat, but rather relies on reason and evidence?
3: Yes, it's it's going all the way. I mean, there is words after words of, after words are. Uh, symbolizing in old Hebrew it's exactly what you sign. I, okay, I then tell that. me
0: something no tell me something that the Bible can teach me that is neither allegorical nor threatening.
3: I give you okay. Head uh, uh, start with the first sentence the in the first two or three chapter of the of the Bible, I give you three sentences. One is God create heaven and earth. So you can think about it, somebody took a chisel, and he's a builder, and he builds a house. Or you can say, do not get confused what is God by anything in the universe, or the universe is God. Okay, so hang on, on, on. no, No, no,
0: no, wait, wait, wait. I said not allegorical or metaphorical. Ah, sorry. So if you say God creates heaven and earth, that is not something that is educational, because there's no evidence or proof for anything like that. And if you say, well, no, but you can take it allegorically, then it falls into the realm of, sorry, assertion, allegory, or threat, right? Assertion without evidence is not educational. That's propaganda. And it relies on threat. And when people point out the threat, people then often, like yourself, will retreat into metaphor, you know, like, ah, thou shalt not kill. Well, didn't God kill everyone in Noah's flood? Well, that's a metaphor. And it's like, well, it's not, doesn't say that it's a metaphor. It doesn't say, Hey man, don't take this story literally. The whole everything that's in italics should be taken metaphorically and by the way the whole things in italics it it puts it forward <laughs> as a truth statement. So I don't think it's fair or right or reasonable or accurate to say this story in the Bible is allegorical when it doesn't fit what you want because it doesn't say in the Bible that this is allegorical and this is not. So you just get to cloak over whatever you find troublesome with the word allegory. But there's no, I mean, if, if it was allegorical, I mean, God would just say it's allegorical, not supposed to be taken literally. And it says God creates heaven and earth. And you say, well, what, I can interpret it this way or that way. No assertion, no allegory, and no threats. What can I learn from the Bible? Um,
3: th- there is heaps of stuff. There, no assertion, know, capit- and allegory. And the reason I say that is
0: assertion is anti-philosophical. To assert something without reason or evidence is anti-philosophical. A, an allegory can be helpful in illuminating a philosophical principle, but it itself is not a philosophical principle. And and a threat is the opposite of philosophy because you are uh, not reasoning someone into a better way of thinking or a, a, a rational way of thinking. You're simply demanding that they obey you uh, under threat of punishment, which is the opposite of philosophy. So assertion, allegory, and threat, take those out of the Bible, and what can I learn? And again, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear. I mean, it's been a while since I read The Beast.
3: <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, the, there's two things that I, I, I want to bring to y- your attention. It is um, if, for the Bible to reach a lot of people with a different uh, ability uh, to think and to comprehend. Mm-hmm. In uh, you, you can't avoid to have allegory there, because you, in order for somebody to reason and think you also need to give, provide somebody with a task he can comprehend on his own level. So so there is some merit in dealing with uh, with allegory. But what I can learn, you know, when you go to the first Ten Commandments in, in the Bible, it's saying, hey, I'm your God, and then he's giving you all the rest of the commandments. So there, for example, you can do learn a lot because the foundation of the outcome of the Ten Commandments, for example, it's a derivative of God. It's a derivative, but you, as it depends on the person you talk about now, a person needs to be able to have the ability to criticize it, and the Bible speaks about few kind of weird sentences how the Israeli people argue with Moses, and subject him to criticism and analysis of what he... he he came uh, what we call uh, the giving the, the Torah on the Mount Sinai to the Israeli people. It's, it is based on reasoning and ability to criticize what he come and arguing and not agreeing or agreeing with what he, he come and instruct the people at the time. So, so I, I don't. I, I think there is a lot of understanding there, although it's not as obvious as it looks. Because I'm your God, mean it's come from him. Now, if you come and tell me, listen, I'm speaking on behalf of God. If I'm educated and I pass through all the education process I have, I will have the reason tools in my head to to put you through a subject and criteria and analysis to see if you are violating the value of God or not so it's, that is what I'm saying is that there is a, a bit to think of if you are saying the, uh, the 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 Bible is truth but it's not a truth in a sense of historical essence. it's a truth in a sense of it is a value and that's okay, the so, so hang once on, you hang on, hang on. distinguish it's much more easy to accept it I feel you're shooting
0: these sentences at me like sticky webs. <laughs> Sorry. of <laughs> I'm getting pinned up against the wall
3: like, like bullboats. No, no. So and if I sound, like? if, please forgive me if I sound not nice.
0: No, I no, no. Things. Listen, I, I, it's a fine chat, and I, I, appreciate, uh, I appreciate the conversation. But I asked the question, tell me something I can learn from the Bible that is not assertion, allegory, or threat. And you gave me the Ten Commandments.
3: No, no, I, I gave you the first sentence leading to the Ten Commandment to tell you that the Ten Commandment is a derivative of knowing God. No, I understand that, but
0: the Ten Commandments, the first one is, you shall have no other gods before me.
3: No, that's the second one. If you read the actual Bible, I'm your God, I uh, took you out of Egypt, that's the first commandment. The second okay. commandment okay, is so, a natural so that.
0: I am your God who took you out of Egypt. That is not a philosophical statement. That is an assertion.
3: There's no proof for it. No, the take you out of Egypt is the assertion. The, the, I'm your no, God. No, I is am your money. God.
0: Is it, philosophically, I am your God is an assertion. No. There's no proof for it.
3: No, because uh, the, the, sec, the few chapters uh, after that, it's dealing with your ability to understand that exact sentence. To uh, to accept that, uh, what we call Hebrew. Hebrew, it's called crossing. It, crossing means a person across the river in order to understand it. That's okay, no, I get big, that. Okay, listen, listen hang big, on, hang oh, on. Uh,
0: hang you, on, you need, hang on. Sorry. Let's, let's say I come to your house and I say to you, I am your dentist. Right? Yeah. Would you accept that as a true statement based upon my say-so? If I wasn't? Or
3: no, you know. but I, I, I understand, uh, Stefan. but the issue with God, the, the, the really problem with God is a person must, on his own thinking, or his front cortex, need to understand it by himself. Uh, you can't tell me there is a God. It doesn't help. If I don't click with my own brain, on my own volition, And you can help me, you can guide me, you can practice me, whatever. But if I don't derive and fall in understanding what is unconditional truth by myself, I don't know it. It's something innate in every person. You can come to understanding what is unconditional truth. But if you don't cross that bit, everything else will be a disaster because we will never... um, Uh, You know what I mean? That bit is really critical for understanding the whole Bible from beginning to end.
0: So you're saying if I don't believe it but expect proof, I'm going to be disappointed. But if I do believe it, it'll all kind of make
3: sense. No, believe it, I don't understand believe it. Uh, 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 Dan and I, in, in that regard, when we say believe is what I do. What I do is my belief, not what I believe is what I do. Because my the the subject of my belief is what I did in the end, not what led me to it. So, but to know God, it's a it's a cognitive process. You have to go. You have to understand what is unconditional truth mean or reality of truth mean. If the but you can't prove gone, it. You 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 can't
0: you you can assert it, and you can cross your fingers and hope that I accept it. But you can't prove it. And therefore, what you're saying. Is not philosophical, but it's dangerous because it, you you use words like truth and universality and 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 values and ethics and so on. These are philosophical terms, and you're kind of hijacking them for an agenda based upon rank superstition. Thank you. You know, it bothers me if you look if you just want to say if you just want to say I believe because I believe. I I have no reason, no evidence. I can't prove that it's true, but it's my particular preference to believe this. Okay. Well, then that that to me is at least that's a more honest statement, but you keep trying to use all these philosophical terms to cover up this
3: rank assertion of superstition there's no, no there's no proof in anything that you're saying Stefan that's exactly you know if course that's exactly the point me and then arguing you, you sincerely put it together and I what I'm saying is God is not a truth like there is a fact the table I sit on a chair now. It is a fact of the chair and I sit on it now. That's not the kind of factual truth I can prove it because it's a value. I can't prove a value in a sense of because it, does, it doesn't have a physical way of being a it. Or I conceptualize it, or my brain can comprehend it, or not. It's a
0: value. Are you saying, wait, wait, are you saying that values cannot be proven?
3: it's 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 a private domain it's not cannot be proven it's inside I need to realize myself I can not go and see it externally to me Stefan it's not something I can that's why I prove it to you there is a God it's an impossible task in that sense in you keep saying in that sense or in this way or
0: but there are things which we can establish for which we have no particular empirical evidence, right? So the old syllogism, which I used in the last show, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. Yes. You, we don't need to go outside the room we're standing in to know the truth of that. Or, or something like the scientific method. The scientific method does not exist in tangible reality. It doesn't exist like a tree or a rock or or, or a forehead. <laughs> but But nonetheless, it is a universal, empirical, and rational methodology Agreed. for determining truth about yeah. the universe. So the fact that doesn't some, something doesn't exist in material form doesn't mean that it can't be validated rationally. There's tons, of course, of mathematical theorems that may never be implemented in the world in engineering or in any other methodology that's empirical, but they still can be examined for their truth value based upon the rational methodology of mathematics. But yeah, So this yeah, is what yeah. I mean
3: when you say that yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you yeah. keep... Yeah, go ahead. I, I absolutely agree with you, but A transcending, or what we call the the first sentence of creation, which means it's not in the universe, and it's not the universe, it's a transcending, it's outside of, it's a metaphor, it's outside of physics. Uh, Therefore, the discipline you apply to it is not relevant to it, because it's a value. (laughs) value? But but, but any other value you can't, you can't put a mathematic. You, the way you can uh, express gravity in mathematics, you cannot express God in that way. The same way you cannot express any other value this way. It's yes, not just God. Friend, it's any other friend. value.
0: When you say outside of physics, you're saying the opposite of matter and rationality. No. But the
1: opposite, uh, the of opposite of matter and, matter. and rationality. <laughs> hang on.
0: Hang on. The okay. opposite of, ra- of matter and rationality is called non existence and falsehood. The opposite of rationality is false. And the opposite of matter is non existence, which is how we know to walk through a door frame rather than into the wall, because we look for where there's no door or a hole in the wall and we go through that. That means the door is not there. Right? So the opposite of material presence is non existence. Which is why we can go through the doorway rather than bump into a door when the door is open. So when you say, well, you see, but God is outside of physics, what you're saying is, well, we have a standard for existence called material presence and or, you know, at least rational consistency. God is the opposite of that. But then what you're saying is God's existence translates in real terms to the opposite of existence. And so, what you're saying, when you say God exists, but God is defined as the opposite of existence, you're saying the opposite of existence exists, which fails at every okay. conceivable level philosophically.
3: Okay, I, I, I hear that. The, the, the point is that if we're living in a conditional reality, what does that mean? That means the, the universe, I mean, we can trace it down to about 15, 000, 15 billion years or something. And the planet one day will be. I don't know. I read in the it's about in three thousand years from now will blow up or something. So it will not be existing the planet. Wait, three thousand? I
0: I think it's a little. I think the sun's got ten billion years to go or something like that. I I can't remember, but it's, I can't, it's more I than can't three thousand.
3: I, I think it's about. I, I read some sort of a a, a theory, but we have about three thousand years to live the planet. Before it will blow up. So that it's nothing is fixed. It's a conditional. Uh, the, uh, I born and I die and I'm in. You know, I have a beginning and end. And every other matter I have a cycle and beginning and end. Uh, God does not subject to that. He is outside of that. And and I can not apply a, a discipline. You apply for <laughs> the world. To God because it's a value. You can't ever apply that discipline to value. And but it's so, no, hang on, hang on. Look, you've you've just done exactly the same thing again,
0: which is you say <laughs> matter has a be- hang on matter has a beginning and an end. Now, as far as I know, matter can neither be created or destroyed, but only transferred to yep. energy and back Correct. again. But that doesn't let's pretend that that's true. Let's pretend <laughs> what you're saying is true, that matter has a beginning and an end, and God does not. But you've just done exactly the same thing. Matter is that which exists. And matter, according to your definition, has a beginning and has an end. Now, if matter, which is the test of whether something exists or not, has a beginning and an end, and you say that God has neither a beginning nor an end, then you're simply saying God does not exist. Because matter is that which exists. And if God has the opposite characteristics of that which exists, God does not exist. You, you can keep stripping away <laughs> all these standards of existence and say somehow that proves the existence of God, but it doesn't. If you keep taking away standards, well, he's outside of physics. He's outside of time. He is neither created nor destroyed. He's eternal. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's an omnipresent. He, like all you're doing is stripping away standards for how we know whether something exists. And then somehow when you, you feel like when you've stripped all these standards away from something that exists – then you somehow have established its existence. But you haven't. All you've done is define something as the opposite of that which exists and then claim that somehow that makes that exist.
3: Okay. Uh, I don't apply the same discipline as you apply because for me, I uh, look at what what I call unconditional truth or reality of truth or truth. And for me, as a value, not as as what you call... I I declare it as my value, yes? It's not... I oh, you don't get to that's, do that. That's not philosophy. You don't, listen,
0: if I hand you a lump of coal and I say, that's gold. <laughs> have I turned it into gold? I have no. not. I've simply used a word that is inappropriate to what I'm handing you. And so you can say, well, I don't use the same methodology as you. I am focused on unconditional truth and this and that and the other. Like, no, no, no. You don't get to use these words like truth and existence and reality to just layer over whatever your particular religious prejudices happen to be. That's not how philosophy works. I don't get to do it either, by the way. I mean, (laughs) I think it's true that everyone should believe that Freddie Mercury is the best singer who ever lived, but I can't make it so (laughs) just by saying it so, right? So when when I give you rational arguments and then you say, well, but I use a different methodology, well, you're not using a methodology. What you're doing is you're pillaging from the gold pile of philosophy and covering up something that you have no philosophical proof for and claiming you've done something, which is exactly the same as me grabbing a stone from the ground and calling myself a gold miner because I write the word gold on it. I mean, you're just writing the word truth on stuff, right?
3: I I agree with you. We don't use... The, no, no, I agree and I don't agree with you. <laughs> I, I agree with you on what you're saying. Now, what I don't agree with you is that I don't think... This is where the exact point is. When I use the word God and when you use the word God and the discipline you apply to make it existing and I apply to make it existing, is very, very different. I, I, don't, I don't agree with your definition to say if God exists or not with, with your way, the way you're going about it. And what's your understanding of it? I have a completely different understanding and I go about it in a completely different way. I'm not so... Yeah, and and your, way that
0: is, 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 your way is the opposite of philosophy, which means you can't use philosophical terms like existence. Existence is a philosophical term in terms of metaphysics. The scientific method to determine existence or non-existence falls into the realm of epistemology or how we know things are true or false. So you are using all of these philosophical terms while steadfastly opposing any philosophical methodology. You don't get to do that. Neither do I. Yeah, I not- cannot assert, listen, listen. If I just say, I don't know, uh, 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 Chinese guys are all shoplifters. And then people say, well, where's your proof of that? And you say, well, or I say, well, I just, it's my method, I have a different methodology. It's, it's proven because um, it, it's an unconditional truth. And people would say, well, no, if you're going to make a statement like all Chinese people are shoplifters, you either have to prove it, or you have to back down from it because you're making a, a statement about reality uh, and a prejudicial statement about reality. And so you don't – I don't get to say, well, my prejudices are exactly the, is true as true as your two and two make four. I just use a different methodology. It's like, no, there is only one methodology for determining truth and that methodology is reason plus evidence. That's it. There's no backup. There's no side pocket. There's no, um, you know, plan B called, well, I'm just going to make cloudy assertions and pretend that they're a philosophy. If you want to say that something is true, then you have to do what scientists do if they claim that their theory is true, is they've got to have a rationally consistent theory and they have to subject it to empirical testing. They don't get to say, well, my theory that the world is banana-shaped is true, I just use a different methodology. It's like, well, if you're using a different methodology, it's not true, right? It's like saying, well, my mathematical, my, mathemat- my in my mathematics, two and two make five. It's just a different methodology from your mathematics. It's like, no, we don't get that choice. <clears throat> if you're going to do mathematics, if you're going to do science, you have to do mathematics and you have to do science. You can't make a statement in opposition to the scientific method and say you're just using a different version of the scientific method and then take all of the language that the scientific method has made powerful, like like valid and established and, and so on, then that – I don't get to pillage all the value that science has created and say, well, I'm doing the opposite of science but just call it slightly different from science. So I've got to move on to the next caller and I'm sorry to have cut you off. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. You're certainly welcome to call back uh, anytime. Uh, and um, uh, I, I, I'm glad that we had a chance to chat at this level, um, but that would be my response. I'm certainly happy to give you the last word, of course. Uh,
3: yeah, uh, first, I enjoyed to talk to you, and thank you for uh, giving the time. I do still think uh, that uh, I don't uh, understand how you apply a scientifical method to a value, I don't think it's compatible and I don't think it's a fair way or it's a misunderstanding of the word God to apply a scientific di- discipline of proving is existing with that kind of discipline. So if, right. we, if we apply that kind of discipline, of course it doesn't exist in that way. But if we apply a discipline the way I suggest about that, it, it's a value and therefore is not subject to a scientific discipline. It is exist.
0: All right. I uh, I already (laughs) talked about my opinions about those, but thank you very much for your call. And uh, Mike, who do we have up next?
2: All right. Up next today is JP. He wrote in and said, Steph, you cite the work of Charles Murray, Steven Pinker, and Nicholas Wade often when analyzing various topics that have come up in past FDR podcasts. I've read the books by all three authors and most recently read A Troublesome Inheritance. By Nicholas Wade, after you suggested this to me in our last conversation on the show. If what Nicholas Wade proposes in his book is indeed, biologically speaking, the actual narrative of our ancestral past, then how is this compatible with the more anthropological approach to history, such as Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel? Why can't these two be compatible? Also, a very important question regarding Wade's book: Why do you think he titled it "A Troublesome Inheritance"? Troublesome for who? And you're going to have to go into and explain a bit that bit of that, JP, for
0: the people that haven't read the book. But that is the question. Yeah, you oh. just uh, you know, sh- sh- shoot at all the bushes and let all the <laughs> politically incorrect <laughs> grouse rise to the sky. <laughs> Uh, yeah, go go for it. Give us, uh, give us some background okay, on so, um, what you've read with uh, a troublesome inheritance, uh, which, by the way, doesn't go into IQ differences, but that's neither here nor there. But right. yeah, so um, go into that stuff, and then I can certainly talk a little bit more about Charles Murray. I know a little bit about guns, germs, and steel, but go ahead. Sure. Um, I can't
4: remember exactly what the impetus was in our last conversation. I don't even remember the question. I remember we were talking about um, – Something and you brought up that book, so I went ahead and started reading it, and then that led to me reading somebody else's book, and then Charles uh, going back to Charles Murray, looking online at the criticisms. Um, And I uh, actually the first thing that made me really want to call in was I think um, you had discussed about um, some implications of IQ and um, how that may or may not lead to success economically. And there are some people, you know, on the uh, on on the media, Facebook and stuff like that, that I think have taken uh maybe something that you said and and may have misinterpreted or run with it to a, to a, a conclusion that I think is not at all what either well definitely not what uh Nicholas Wade intended, I think from my interpretation or you. So I want to a part of this call is I want to clear the air on that to make sure that I'm I'm straight with with things that uh, you suggested in the past and uh, also Nicholas Wade. Okay, And then the other thing. So with the question is uh, you had a podcast, uh, I think the one you did just recently with about first principles. So the reason why I'm not going to go right to the uh, political hot button issues is because I want to make sure we go to those first principles. And go to the beginning and, and and kind of weed out, hash out Nicholas Wade's theory and, and correctly and, and represent it well. Before I may, if I want to punch holes in it, you know, at least we've hashed it out uh, what he intended to get across. And I, I think I understand. I'm pretty sure. And I would definitely okay. Like...
0: Enough, enough uh, editorializing. Let's just get to the facts. Okay, are like right. You know, let right, just get so, to the facts. Go ahead.
4: Okay, first. The first thing is I don't see a how um, his approach and Jared Diamond's approach is incompatible. I think they're perfectly compatible and uh, where the environment uh, dictates what genes are selected to be reproduced socially. So I, I don't, you know, if you some a lot of the critics, actually, all the critics of Nicholas Wade will say, well, it's a. It's ridiculous. It's not genes. It's, it's not biological. It's cultural. But the things I don't understand, it's so easy to see that it seems like they're putting the cart before the horse because genes m- determines what
0: cultural behavior is. It's the well, no, I, I, hang on. That's, that's a very big statement to make, right? Genes determine cultural behavior? But that's what Wade says in his book. I've got quotes. Uh, I, okay. I think – no, I think he would – again, I'm I'm not going to speak for the guy. I think he would argue – because determine is a very correlation of 1.0 deterministic. I think that he would say that genes select for cultural behavior. But I don't think he would say genes determine cultural behavior 100% of the time because that would be pure determinism, right? Um. Yeah, could you – okay, so
4: genes select for – cultural behavior i um, I'm just a little confused on could you tell me what the difference is i mean if the genes if someone's genes are what causes their um, has a lot to do with their behavior it's like like uh, Stephen Pinker will say like the oh
0: no listen let me let, let me let me give examples right okay. and let us let us fearlessly weigh. <laughs> let us fearlessly wade in where angels are uh, d- d- terrified to tread okay so we talked. Okay, so l- let's give the big picture. So, in A Troublesome Inheritance, Nicholas Wade makes the argument that race is a very real biological construct. Yep. So, there are people on the sociological side of things who say that race is a social construct. In other words, there are n- zero underlying biological differences of any importance among races or between races. Mm-hmm. The major being, of course, uh, Caucasian, uh, Black, and Asian. That's no, not the only, but those are sort of the, the major. And right. Hispanic, I guess, uh, more, more recently. But um, so there are some people who say that the race is, is never a valid standard for looking at group characteristics. Now, race is always an invalid characteristic for looking at individual characteristics, right? So right. E- even if there are differences among the races, that has zero impact on the next person I meet from any particular. Right. Race.
4: He's talking about median,
0: the, the median. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but it, but it does, it does mean something if you are talking about aggregates. So, uh, the, the right. example that I would give is let's say that I run, <laughs> let's go way out on a limb and say, I'm running a basketball team. <laughs> right. And someone comes up to me and says, Hey, Steph, you got to see this Chinese ball player. He's fantastic. Right. Mm-hmm. What would I say?
4: um you would say okay let, let me let me let me watch him
0: right i wouldn't say are you kidding me chinese guys on average are shorter than caucasians and blacks yeah so there's no way i'm going to see any chinese guy in in an audition for a basketball i don't it's not even called an audition i'm sure right so i would never prejudge the value of a basketball player based upon his race, right? Correct. On the other hand, in aggregate, oh, try out. Thanks, Mike. It's an audition now. Belt out something from Cabaret. <laughs> it's the <laughs> gayest basketball league you've ever seen. But, um, and, and I would actually go and see that much more than I would <laughs> go and see a basketball game, which is why nobody's ever asked me to run a basketball at team. Um so so I would never say no I'm not going to see a Chinese basketball player but if we look at basketball as a whole would we expect there to be the same proportion of Chinese guys as say African Americans yeah no no so in terms of judging each individual ball player it has no value to know what their race is, but when we look at things in aggregate, there are some value, right? Correct. There is some value in that. Mm-hmm. So so one argument is that race is entirely a social construct, and there's no um, importance or maybe no characteristics at all that are genetic that differentiate the races. That's one argument. And th- another argument, which is made more by Nicholas Wade, is that there are some pretty salient, uh, fundamental, and pretty important differences between the races. Now, the challenge with denying that is that you have a great challenge, given that the races, you know, tens and tens of thousands of years ago, the races diverged. I mean, as far as I understand it, we all came out of Africa, and then some people headed north, and some people headed, you know, north and became sort of Western European Caucasians, and some people headed uh, further to to Siberia and, and to... Um, to where is now Thailand and, and China and, and uh, Japan and became Asians and so on. Now, these are incredibly different environments. I mean, do you compare Kenya to Scotland <laughs> or compare Kenya to Iceland or compare Kenya to. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, Stefan, you're, uh, you're like, preaching like the, to the where choir. the Eskimos or the Inuit live. Sorry, go ahead. So you're preaching to the choir. I, I no, no, no. I'm, and I'm not, with, I'm not I'm uh, trying to. Look, I'm not trying to. Sorry, I'm not trying to agree or disagree oh, with you. Okay, I'm just right, laying right. it out for other people because sure. this is a very um, closeted to debate, right? So a lot of people who are talking about race these days, um, they have described themselves as, as being like Galileo under the Pope. It's just very heretical to talk about race. Uh, to talk about race from any purely biological standpoint particularly when it comes to race and iq race and brain size and so on because that is really alarming stuff to a lot of people because but sorry go ahead
4: the thing is is that
0: both murray
4: and nicholas wade although nicholas wade less and i have more of a rant on charles murray than anybody in that situation in this conversation as far as race and genes but uh they failed to to uh Somehow they're, they were allowed for a bait and switch to happen, especially Murray, where somehow intellectual superiority somehow transferred to
0: superiority. Okay? And so no, 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 no. I think that's, and I've heard Charles Murray say that this is not the case at all. Because there's nothing in evolution that can be called superior or inferior. Well, and, and if, well that's what not true, though. About, Hang on, hang on. Let me just finish my thought. Sure. So, and before we get to that, let me just sort of finish laying out. Mm -hmm. These are not my arguments, just so everyone knows. So don't shoot the messenger. I'm simply relaying the arguments that other people have made that I am not competent to evaluate. So, the basic argument is that when... When the races, or when, when, the Af- when the blacks left Africa and, and went to other regions, the environment was markedly different. Now, in particular, the environment, let's just take uh, Northern Europe. Okay. So in Northern Europe, you have the winter from hell, right? I mean, Canada too, but that's later, right? So uh, in Africa, uh, food is plentiful and your major threat is other people and animals and so on, right? Mm -hmm. And so the need for the deferral of gratification in Africa historically would be lower. And if you go – and nobody's proven this. It's just a theory that people have. As you go further north, what happens is you get this horrible winter. And in the horrible winter, if you are not good at deferring gratification, you tend to die because you eat your seed crop or you eat too much food and and you have to really ration yourself. Also, you have to get into um, agriculture. Because game is not plentiful enough, particularly in the winter, so you need stuff that can store. And so you get into agriculture and you get into storing and deferring gratification and so on. And so what happens is, according to that, certain characteristics within the brain tend to get further enhanced, which is the deferral of gratification and there is a selection for more complex intellectual capacity. And uh, it's even more the case in places like uh, uh, Siberia and even to some degree uh, in, um, in China and, and in Japan where agriculture is a, uh, a, even more of a challenge uh, with rice and, and all of that than it is in, in northern Europe.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so the argument is that there may have been evolutionary pressures that create different capacities or select for different capacities among the races. And this is one way that people try to to explain the fairly, as far as I understand it, again, I'm no expert, the fairly well-tested phenomenon that the average IQ in Africa is 70 to 75. And the average IQ in Europe tends to be about 100. And then the average IQ for Asians tends to be 104, 105, 106. Now, the argument is that if you say that The races diverged and and entered into incredibly different environments with strong evolutionary pressures. And evolution can be incredibly rapid, incredibly rapid, because now they can figure out not just where the genes are different, but even how old those genes are. And where uh, people in Tibet have gone into the high mountains, their lungs have significantly adapted in less than five years. Thousand years uh, for for Jews uh, Ashkenazi uh, Jews uh, in, in the, the Jews in in uh, America and so on haven't even have the highest I think average recorded IQ which is one mm-hmm. of the reasons according to the theory that they end up uh, you know at the top of uh, banking and and it's not a cabal it's like <laughs> it's just the way that the, the evolution has worked uh-huh. and there's but that that gene is is relatively recent uh, the, the the gene that's supposed to have enhanced this and again nobody knows for sure these are all just theories now people who say that there really can't be any intellectual discrepancies between the races have a huge problem in terms of science, because our brain is our most expensive organ, right? I mean, what differentiates us from every other creature, and it is what uh, evolution pours the most resources into. And so if you're going to say that, when the split between the races happened, uh, and again, I I'm off the top of my head, I think it's like 100 or 150,000 years ago, when the split between the races <clears throat> occurred and human beings ended up in vastly different environments, you would have to make the case that even though these are vastly different environments requiring significantly different intellectual capacities, that the brain was somehow magically shielded from all evolutionary pressures. And that, to me, is a very hard case to make because the whole point of evolution is it is adaptation to local environments. And where those local environments are different, you would expect different results. This is why polar bears are white <laughs> and brown bears that live in the woods are brown, right? right. It's now, so it, it's not – let me just finish. I'm almost done. All right. So – and this has huge impacts on things like a reproductive uh, strategies and so on uh, so uh, this is why we talked about this r versus k reproductive strategy which seems to be somewhat race related and so <clears throat> the last thing that i'll say though is that none of this has anything whatsoever to do with superiority or inferiority not even close it's like like is the brown bear superior to the polar bear well no they have simply adapted to different environments uh, it is not a matter Of better or worse, it is simply, um, we would look at it as the amoral adaptation to uh, localized environments. And Charles Murray's thesis, very briefly, Mm -hmm. uh, and he did this with uh, Dick Hernstein, who was a professor of psychology and who unfortunately died of cancer right before the book was published, uh, the the bell curve. Their argument, which I think it was chapter 13 in the book, which raised the most ire, their argument is to say excuse me, just getting back over a call. Their argument is that if you, and they, they sort of look back on IQ tests and data that started at the turn of the last century. Uh, when, when blacks started going into the military, everyone gets an IQ test. And they're saying that the IQ for the American blacks is uh, approximately 85. It's intermediate between... African blacks and Europeans. And there are some uh, researchers who argue that blacks have, uh, American blacks have 25% European DNA because of uh, interbreeding and blah, blah, blah. And so they say, look, if, if you want to know what the challenges are with the black population in America, if you look at IQ, that explains a lot. In other words, if you take <clears throat> whites with an IQ of 85 and then compare them to blacks in america who have an average iq of 85 according to many tests which again i can't verify and i just i'm just repeating the arguments then they say they're about the same their income is about the same their level of criminality is about the same right so so they're saying there's a problem with um iq in the black population now whether that's genetic whether that's environmental i've heard both sides of the debate i don't have any remotely any expertise to be able to come down on one side or the other that's the good news is nobody seems to and there's a very good debate online between um uh dr flynn of the flynn effect and and charles murray charles murray tends to be a bit more pessimistic about Digenics. the capacity to raise i'm sorry james flynn i think his name is i said charles um, murray, charles murray seems to be more Digenics, pessimistic yeah. about yeah more pessimistic about the raise in iq uh, he's he thinks that there's dysgenics going on in IQ because of the welfare state, whereas Charles, Mar- so whereas James Flynn seems to be more optimistic. Uh, so again, these are it's a very very rapid sprint through a right. very complex topic. Again, reminding anybody, I don't have any answers, I don't have any opinions. I'm simply repeating the arguments that I've heard based upon the questions that you have. I don't see any difference between. Sorry, I don't see any any contradictions between guns, germs, and steel which is the idea that that certain geographical positive feedback mechanisms vaulted Europeans over some other civilizations, Uh, that and and the IQ thing. Um, But the idea that there is no biological difference between the races does not appear to hold up, uh, particularly in the field of um, uh, anthropology. Uh, And uh, I don't want to get into any more details because I'm always skating on the edge of any kind kind of useful information as it stands, but just to emphasize, it is not, and Charles Murray has, has always said the following, you cannot judge individuals based upon, even if there are genetic differences between the races, you cannot judge individuals based upon those. But in aggregate, it may be important information to have. That's number one, and number two, is it is in no way, shape or form, any argument for black superiority or Asian superiority or white superiority it is simply um, a description of adaptation to local environments that may have had some longer-term genetic effects. Just, it's, it's, if that's a rough, reasonable that's summary, about, of, yeah, of that's what a you good understand.
4: Recap. I mean, yeah. I mean, thanks for. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think uh, number one is uh, I, <clears throat> I, I'm I I really want to point out that I think what Nicholas Wade has done is very interesting and 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 inspiring. Not what he's done as being a brave person talking about uh, hot button issues. No, I'm I'm talking about his writing. It put a lot in my imagination, and I just want to say that uh, there's two quotes from this his his uh, book, uh, the Inheritance Troublesome Inheritance, that really uh, are really interesting. The one is he says, "Too bad nature has performed this grand fifty thousand year experiment, generating scores of fascinating variations on the human theme." Only to have evolutionary biologists express disappointment <laughs> at her efforts. There's that one, and then uh, the other one, which I think sets the stage, which makes him sets him apart from Charles Murray, in my mind, is that he and it's the last sentence in the book. He says the experiment is not being conducted in our interests. It has no purpose or goal, yet it, it offers considerable benefits. In, considerable benefits. Instead of there being a single type of human society, there are many creating a rich diversity of cultures whose more promising features can be adopted and improved on by others. So what he implies is you know, the, this ongoing story of uh, the, the evolution. It's not done. It's not something that's set in stone. Here are the three, four races, and this is what they're good at, and this is what they're not good at, and that's the end of the story you know and i think that last sentence very clearly uh puts everything in perspective the thing with charles murray and i'm a little bit i know you 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 quoted him and you said that well he he makes he says it over and over again to his critics i do not judge the individual the thing that I, I i don't think he's being i think he's a little bit disingenuous so I'll, I'll tell you why i remember watching an interview of him and he said he was very angered at the fact that Uh, political correctness and uh people in the scientific community who are afraid of being uh, ostracized and stuff for telling the truth will not allow him or to uh don't even want to hear him or have him do this uh, study which is of utmost importance utmost importance which he quotes but then he goes ahead and basically dams the whole western culture with the next book which is uh losing
0: ground or i don't know the one that came after that late, lately where he's very oh hang on uh, are you talking about uh, the one that he did uh, on the state of white america i think it's 1960 to 2010 i or think something i like think
4: that? that's it but i know he was very yeah. that's where he was very pessimistic now how can his work and be so important and then have no functional consequence to make things better i, I just i don't i don't get that
0: uh, wait, wait, just, hang on, hang on. Yeah, Let me make. Sure, I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. So, so you're saying, how can it be so important, <clears throat> but make no, have no functional difference in making things better?
4: Yeah, important for who? Important. I mean, if he's 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 done all this work, he's done all this research, and whether it's true or false, I'm not talking about this. Irrelevant. But I'm I'm thinking about his motives, you know. But then, for for example, for with you, Stefan, you you, you believe, and I believe as well, your work is very important. Because you can point to, this is what my work is, this is what I've learned, this is what I've studied, this is what I've found out, and this is how you can apply it to make, in a practical sense, to improve things. Charles Murray does the same thing. He, he thinks this just as highly of his work, but at the end it's just pessimistic. Well, you know, the dumb are going to get dumber and the rich are going to get richer and it's just going to go
0: opposite ways. going Why is this so darn important then if that's his ultimate? Okay, now I can – I obviously – I can't speak for Charles Murray. All we share is a forehead, but okay. <laughs> so I can't speak for Charles Murray. Uh, the 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 book is uh, coming apart. The state of, of white America, right? Uh, and and he he sticks to white for reasons that he explains mm. in the, in the opening chapter. And um, so I I can't speak for Charles Murray, but I will tell you that if Charles Murray's and Dick Hernstein's and other people's arguments are true, if they're true. So this is the big caveat which everyone will cut out who wants Mm -hmm. to make me look like a bad guy or whatever, right? right? But if they're true, then if there is a genetic basis for difference in intelligence between the races, that is hugely important for society to know. Hugely, hugely, hugely important for society to know. Okay, why is that? Why do you think that is?
1: Um, um, so I uh, no, no, I can answer that. I can answer yes. that. I can, answer that. Me,
0: right? I can
4: so. answer that. Do you want me okay, to answer that? Yeah. Uh, Charles Murray, I believe that if he was not afraid of any repercussions to his character, to his career, anything like that. And he's already hinted at this. Two things to come off the top of my head. Number one, people should be tested for IQ before they, people spend resources on them to go to college. Number one. Number two, um... If there's any any if there's ever any ability to change uh, genetics uh, biologically, you know, in vitro or, w- or whatever, you know, down, you know, in the future world that that would be desirable. Uh, we could uh, isolate those genes that are for low
0: IQ and change them. He has. I, implied- don't, uh, I don't I don't I've never heard him make those arguments. Um, maybe he has, but I don't think that that's why it's important. OK,
4: so no, no, no. From hi- from his point of view.
0: No, I mean, uh, yeah, and again, from from his, if okay, he's made so those arguments, then that's great. Now, okay. there are, of course, IQ tests for college already, right? SATs and right. and all that, right? So, I mean, I not right. exactly IQ, but yeah, but. That's right. So, the reason why, if there is IQ differences between the races, and and by IQ I mean which affects things later on. I mean, one of the challenges that people say, oh, well, IQ, the problem is it's just it's culturally biased and so on. Like, nobody's thought of that over the last hundred years or so. Like, (laughs) oh my God, it's culturally. And of course, if it's culturally biased for white people, how on earth do Asians regularly score higher, right? Mm -hmm. Because the the hierarchy, according to, again, hundreds and hundreds of IQ studies, which I can't validate because I'm not an expert, uh, seems to be um, Asians at the top And then Caucasians, and then American blacks and Hispanics, and then sub-Saharan blacks, and I think even lower is the aboriginals in the outback of Australia. I think they have the lowest recorded IQ. Something
4: like that.
0: It's something like that. And so that tends to be the hierarchy. The reason why it's important to know is that if there are IQ differences between the races, then crying racism is racist. Okay, I'm trying to that is really important because if white people are constantly accused of racism, institutionalized racism, because other minorities in sort of white-founded or Western European-founded countries do badly. Now, if they do badly because whites are just racist and this, that, and the other, well, then you know that would be one discussion, and maybe that's a discussion. I mean, that's a discussion we've been having. For the last 50 years. Right. However, if there are whether and, and whether it's whether it's environmental or genetic, is not that important at the moment. It certainly is important moving forward. But if the IQ tests, which have been replicated hundreds and hundreds of times, at least this talk about America, if the IQ tests are correct and blacks have an average IQ of 85 or so. I think black women a little higher, black men a little lower, and whites have this whatever IQ of a hundred. And again, there's lots of caveats and lots of criticisms. I'm saying if all of this is true. Right, right. If it's all true, then that explains the vast majority of the discrepancies between whites and Hispanics, between whites and blacks, and the disparities between Asians. And whites. Okay, I don't see because how you, Asians how have a higher perke- like. If, if, in other words, if you normalize by IQ, the differences between the races vanish significantly. Now, if there is, are these genetic differences in intelligence between the races, if if that's true, then saying the only problem with blacks or Hispanics is white racism is. Incredibly unjust and unfair. It's like saying the only reason that there aren't more Chinese players in the NBA is because of black racism. Like if you had no idea, for whatever reason, if you had no idea that, I mean, it's a weird thing to say. If you had no idea that Chinese people or, or Asians were shorter than whites and African Americans, if you had no idea of that. Then you'd say, well, look, the, the, the Chinese guys or the Asians are vastly underrepresented in the NBA. Uh, well, um, then, then, then you'd say, well, this must be racism and you'd have all this affirmative action and this and that and the other. Yeah. But you would, be, you would be working the wrong end of the stick. You would, be, you would be mistaken completely. You'd be like trying to cure a sunburn with a sunlamp. Wait, but Stefan, you made a big jump.
4: And, and you, you're you making a parallel between... Only one? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Stefan, Go you're making a parallel between putting a basketball in a hoop, which is very correlated to size and height and other... I mean, to IQ with economic success. I, it's, it's not exactly parallel. I don't, I don't see how you can just flip over from one thing. One is obvious. It's It's so basic and rudimentary. You're tall. You can obviously reach have a better shot possibly can see over everyone's heads you know to iq with economic success i think you're overvaluing iq i i really no no listen no no
0: don't don't personalize this to me brother no no okay, I'm, so, I'm not personalizing the in, in the IQ, argument no listen iq is important because it is so predictive look if predictive, iq look right, if, if iq only measured if iq only measured cultural compatibility right and there were problems with this so like way back on the IQ tests, one of the questions was, what is a regatta, <laughs> right? Right. Now, I mean, some black kid from the projects, what the hell is he going to know what a regatta is? You know, it's just like a Wait, that, that boat was a racer. real question? Like, right? That was an actual question? I think, I think it was in the language section. Oh. Uh, so there were cultural problems, and people have been working on ironing out those cultural problems forever. And I think they've done a pretty good job. Uh, from what I can tell, right? In, in other words, they have IQ tests that are merely vi- visual spatial intelligence tests, which, which have no language whatsoever. In other words, it's patterns within shapes and things like that. But the problem is, is that IQ is so predictive of future success. And IQ or intelligence is apparent very early in life, very early in in life, again, according to what I've read, which I cannot say whether I stand or don't stand behind, because I'm a podcaster with a training in philosophy, not okay, this stuff. But you also, but, have to but dis- there is there there are uh, differences uh, in reasoning that show up uh, within races and between races as early as two weeks old, three months old, six months old, and so on. Before we would assume that cultural stuff had had sort of come into play. Oh, I agree with all that. So, and it does correlate very strongly to success in the long term. Now, success, of course, doesn't always mean economic success. Right. That's
4: but, one but
0: thing. The, yeah, but the reality is that people who have higher IQs tend to do better. Again, individually, it doesn't matter. You know, there's five easy pieces. This, this guy, Jack Nicholson, plays this brilliant guy who spends his time uh, uh, working on oil rigs in Alaska. You know, I guess that actually makes some money or whatever, but it 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 has a strong correlation to success in the aggregate again not in the individual but in the aggregate these things are all useless for predicting particular individuals they are not useless for um differentiating groups as a whole sorry to, go ahead
4: you have to remember that these experiments are all done in the presence of the state okay so if if i would i would this is all conjecture on my part this is i'm just kind of imagining these things but uh I'm just right now, (laughs) but um, if there's a free market, there's no state, the free market becomes the environment. The free market becomes the selection process, the evolutionary selection, the pressure. Now, I I would I'm going to make a guess if I lived for a thousand years and and I came back and there was a free market, free economy, you you know, no state that that difference between um, IQ and correlating with economic success and what you just stated would be almost null i i, I don't do you know? see. i, I don't do you know? see
0: what's that how do you know
4: because i i said well i don't know i'm saying I'm, I'm just kind of doing what uh what's his name did at the end of his book uh nicholas Wade where he just sort of just took a chapter to just sort of just spitball about what he thinks <laughs> i mean he did that he said he was going to do that in the last chapter and he did but i i, I don't there are too many factors. There are too many factors to make that leap that uh IQ is 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 going there's a correlation, yes, there's a correlation now between IQ six IQ when you're uh that you have and the success. Okay? And not on a personal level, but on an aggregate level. I understand that. But there are two but there are too many factors. There are so many uh things working against um, the free exchange of ideas, the free exchange of labor, the free that you can't say that people who have maybe a lower IQ don't have other aspects of their personality, which would be a very good commodity in a
0: true free market. I I just can't make that leap because well no listen no no but but <laughs> but I think what you're trying to or what you think I may be implying, which goes back to superiority is that having a high IQ is better or makes you superior. Well, how, how does Murray say,
4: no, having a, a high IQ is not better, it's not um, superior, and having a low IQ is not inferior, but the whole world's just going to fall apart and we're all going to go to hell in a handbasket
0: because of low IQ? I mean, it doesn't make any well, sense. Well, no, 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 but, but remember, no, hang on, remember, he's a libertarian though. And again, not to argue for no. him, which I wouldn't want to do, but if I understand it correctly, he's, one of the reasons he's pessimistic about increasing IQ is because, and this is not something that's just noticed by him, and this is, again, not even particularly race-specific, but the lower IQ people tend to have more kids. And the higher IQ people who have to pay for the lower IQ people through the welfare state and through public school uh, and uh, subsidized housing and God knows what everything else, me- Medicaid, Medicare, well, the one for the young, can never remember which one it is. But um, so why doesn't he call uh, He's, the saying, he's saying that 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 we have a situation wherein, and this is in the movie *Idiocracy*, where people of lower IQ have a much greater incentive to breed. Than people who have a higher i q and in in other words low iQ breeding is being subsidized, and high i q breeding is being taxed and so he 's not saying well it 's just bad uh, no matter what he 's saying that there are specific government policies that are making um, that, that are not helping in terms of of trying to if there 's genetic elements to it raising raising the iq and even if there aren 't even if there, even if it 's all entirely environmental those incentives that are put forward by the government are not helping the situation.
4: Oh, of course not. I, I don't know why he doesn't call – that. that's the biggest problem. If you want to do a project that would change the world, which he claimed, I mean – okay, maybe I'm being a little bit hard on him. I mean if why wouldn't he call out the state, which is the main problem? I mean that's what's going to be cause the, the falling apart, the collapse. I oh, mean – No, like but, you,
0: no you, he has – listen. <clears throat> he has called out the state. Uh, I mean his book – Losing Ground, which I reviewed on this show years ago. His book, Losing Ground, where he basically said, before the welfare state, this was the situation for a poor young man and a poor young woman. After And and the the best situation was finish high school, get married, get a job, blah, 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 blah. And he went through all of the welfare state and he said, look, this is the situation now where they're better off to go on welfare, have kids, not get married, and not get a job, and not even finish high school. Mm -hmm. And So he, you know, and and this was instrumental in, you know, Clinton in the 90s. Oh, we're going to end welfare as we know it and so on. And and this, of course, didn't happen because politics. But um, he has, um, he's written an entire book on his libertarian beliefs, which I've read. and, And he is a very small market and free market guy. Now, the degree to which in a free society... In a free society if there's a, there will still be an i q bell curve in the same way that a free society won't make everyone the same height right, right, right. I think that you know one of the reasons I um, despise the state is the degree to which the state uh, feasts on and perpetuates a lower i q class of whatever race mm-hmm. because you have this weird and and completely opposite situation where uh, property taxes go to the local schools, which means that the poorer Neighborhoods get the worst schools. You you couldn't design a system more designed to isolate and entrench the poor, and you couldn't design a system designed to enhance and increase the the this, this is smart and and the wealthy. This is part of what he's saying in terms of coming apart. That we've lost uh, the, the the manufacturing jobs, uh, and we have uh, really terrible government schools, and we also have a system wherein you know smart guys used to kind of stay in their local neighborhoods, but now there's the a system for Getting smart kids to ivy League schools or to the upper echelon of education is so efficient that they basically all the smart people get scooped out of their neighborhoods and head off to you know yale or harvard or or wherever and um and that creates further problems uh, in because they're not there creating jobs and and in the local neighborhood and so on so anyway that's a, it's a big book, so I won't want to yeah. sort of summarize it but uh, I don't think he's saying that it's hopeless I think he's saying that um that a lot of this has to do. With, uh, the, with the government and a smaller government, I don't think it would eliminate. Disparities and in, in IQ and the relationship between IQ and uh, and income.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But what it, because I mean, what makes a successful business leader would still have to be high intelligence and high EQ, EQ or emotional intelligence is often overlooked as a factor uh, of success. Um, <clears throat> but. Uh, the, the, the ability to defer gratification, to solve complex problems, to communicate easily, uh, to to negotiate, these do require higher intelligence and there is a bell curve in human intelligence. Take the races out of the equation. A, a free market is not going to eliminate those but it will benefit everyone on the bell curve by uh, adding to and creating wealth and so on. and And who knows where that will shake out. In the long run, I mean, I would love it if everyone could get to. And I remember, it, I think it was in um, Brave New World, where they talked about setting up an island of super high IQ people, but it completely failed. Or whatever was that? Well, I, I'd like that for people news? to be smarter. I'd like for people to have more opportunities, and I sure as hell would like to to push as much as possible our intelligence as a species. I and mean, one of the reasons why I put out these shows, which are highly complex. And, and and sometimes quite technical and, and often very challenging for people is that I frankly don't care what people's IQ is very fundamentally. I don't care because I don't believe that 500 years ago people were just stupid and now they're just super smart. I mean, there's some evidence that in the 19th century people were, <laughs> were actually smarter. Um, but what has happened in the 500 years between then and now is that, particularly in the realm of science, we have a methodology that didn't exist before. So if you have the right methodology, you can harness the intelligence that you have in a way that you can't even imagine if you don't have that methodology. Like the dumbest scientist now is infinitely better than the smartest scientist in the 13th century. Yeah, I mean, Right. I, in terms in terms of what they can actually and smart is the wrong word. In t- more productive, more accurate, more because they just because have to follow have, principles. They don't have to
4: reinvent the wheel.
0: Yeah, and it's not like we suddenly just became more productive after seventeen fifty or seventeen seventy or wherever you want to start the industrial revolution. We just they had some free trade, right? And so, like, I, I genuinely <laughs> believe that people we think are super smart now, by the time the philosophy we're pushing out here becomes mainstream, they'll look like idiots. like they'll, they'll, And I've said this on the show a million times before. They'll look completely and totally and utterly retarded. Because people will look at, I don't know, let's pick on anyone, Janet Yellen, right? They'll look at someone like Janet Yellen and say, how could she get out of bed with the cognitive dissonance of running a strong-arm counterfeit operation and thinking she's a good person? Mm-hmm. Like people running the slave trade, we look back at them now and say, how on earth could they get out of bed and transfer human beings around like cattle and buy and sell them and check their teeth and beat them and – right? I mean how horrifying is that? Yeah. And so I believe I, – I don't – I think it's a fascinating topic. I really do. The race and IQ is, is fascinating. Culture and IQ is fascinating. It, it is because I bow to evidence. I'm an empiricist. And it's also – I do enjoy it from a payback system a payback. And I'm, let me just be completely petty here for a moment. Well, <laughs> who's going to kid who? Not for a moment. But people on the left are constantly bitching at people on the right for being anti science, anti science, right? Mm-hmm. And if it turns out that there is uh, a, an IQ discrepancy between the races that can't be easily explained away, then people who say, well, race is just a social construct, a construct and so on, they're anti-science. They're anti-science. Right. And if it turns out that these are, have some, uh, you know, because, because people on the left are always bitching at people on the right for not accepting evolution, right? And so if this political correctness is a way for people on the left to deny the effects of evolution on racial characteristics... In other words, well yeah, the skin changed. Oh yeah, well the hair changed. Oh yeah, well the eye color changed. Oh yeah, there's a different number of vertebrae. The jaws are bigger, the you know That's the, because the, the, the the black man's hips are narrower, which makes them better runners because you've got to run more when you're a hunter-gatherer than when you are a farmer and so on. Like, oh yeah, every you know, so much about about the bodies changed when the race is diverged and so on. Oh, except for the brain, our most expensive organ, which had this magic ray shield completely excluding it from right. evolution of any kind. Well, that's so irrational as to be... It's religious. That comes, it, that's, is, that's it is fundamentally secularism. religious. It's, it's about as rational as saying that the world is 6,000 years old because I counted the days in the Bible. That's the, the, and I, I, like, I, like, I like it when hypocrites get their comeuppance, and I like that people on the left who've been deriding people on the right for being anti-scientific, the way they recoil... From what is sometimes called race realism or from some of the biological evidence about differences between the races, Do we, they're just close. La, 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 make it go away. Call everyone a racist the same way that they, some people in the right call people who question the Bible, they, they, you know, communists and, and, and horrible people and so on. Because- it's just fascinating to see the religion of the left come up against some, some challenges in the racial realm and turn completely into fundamentalists that they've been making fun of for the last six billion years. So, well,
4: is there anything more embarrassing than a than a statist atheist? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like they they use the scientific method and they're champions of that and critical reason, but they don't apply it universally. They don't apply it to everything. They only apply it no, to that. No, no. But know? that's because they're communists, right?
0: <laughs> so communists right. use race to whatever, right?
4: But what you're referring but, to, you know, the the the, uh, the, the dualism as far as uh, genes only affect what's superficial and not what's in our minds. See, that's religious. That's that's the remnants of, of religious thinking that are going to take a long time to, to be gotten rid of. It's well, still- it turns the
0: brain into a soul. It turns the physical exactly. brain into a soul which is immune from... Like, the soul doesn't get cold. The soul doesn't sweat. It's immune from environment. The soul is a ghost in, immune to the environment. And on the left... And again, please understand, I don't have a dog in the fight. I don't know what the answer is. But if there's truth, and there seems to be some pretty compelling evidence, but if there's truth that there are brain differences between the races that are very clearly driven by evolutionary pressures from the immediate environment over tens of thousands of years,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: then if people on the left reject that, then they have just become as superstitious as... Anyone on the right they've ever criticized could ever be. We have to follow reason and evidence no matter how uncomfortable it might make us. We okay. follow reason and evidence no matter what. Do you, do you know why, Stefan, do, can you imagine why someone would reject that?
4: I'm not saying they have a right – no, I'm not saying rationally reject it but emotionally reject it. Why someone would uh, reject it the would, 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 would have a visceral – reaction to someone suggesting, well, on aggregate, blacks are, have a lower IQ. I mean, I'm just
0: saying, can you imagine why someone would have an emotional reaction to that? Oh, I think there'd be lots of reasons why people would, some political and some personal. So, I mean, there was a guy, I think his name was Richwine, Jason Richwine, who wrote a thesis That said one of the challenges of of people, of Hispanics coming in from Mexico is that Hispanics have an IQ of 85 on average, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, this was, you know, he went through his thesis advisor. They did all of the math and, and, you know, they went through and he got his thesis. And then, like, I don't know, years later, somebody found this and it just went insane, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, More recently, um, James Watson. Mike, if you can just check that. So James Watson, who with Crick, was one of the discoverers of the double helix structure of DNA. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: He said a couple of years ago, he said one of the challenges of, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said one of the challenges of foreign aid is that we assume that, you know, everyone we give aid to is the same intelligence. But in Africa, that doesn't seem to be the case in in overall, in general, blah, 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 right? Mm Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, people just went insane over the guy. I mean, he, he got fired from his job as a researcher, uh, a medical researcher. Why, I think he did cancer. For, he got fired of his job for like 40 or 50 years, and now he has to sell his um, he has to sell his um, Nobel Prize. Well, is he shocked?
4: He is he surprised?: I don't understand how you can you know, have I, intelligence and, and be shocked that people would have that reaction to it. People actually equate intelligence with superiority. It's not true. I mean maybe you, know, you and I don't think it's true, but the general public, that's how they think. So you can't go out and say things that are like that and be like, oh my
0: god, look how they're reacting to it. That's you – know, I don't understand. I, you know, but that, that, that this is an area where there is a lot of volatility because people – I mean nobody wants – racism has become such a terrible word and of course racism is a terrible thing. It is, it is primitive tribalism and so on, where you just think that someone is in every way inferior because of their race. And then that is irrational and it's wrong and it's immoral. And a lot of nasty stuff has happened in the name of racism, just as a lot of nasty stuff has happened in, in the name of lots of other isms. So I think people are concerned for a number of reasons. One is that, let's say that tomorrow it were conclusively proved that the races differ in IQ because of genetics right it's not going to happen but let's say as the genome project marches on and so on let's say that they can find it out right right i think that what would be of concern to people which is of concern for me as well and i think all reasonable decent people is would that have people say well forget it (laughs) can't do anything to improve anything you know there's going to be ghettos. And the blacks are going to be poor, and the Hispanics are going to be poor, and the Asians are going to be our overlords, right?
4: Mm-hmm. And
0: and then people might say, well, forget it, right? We and I think that would be hugely problematic. Why would they? I think, I think Asians to be our
4: overlords. A, I mean, that's another. It, it, Asians uh, have other traits, according to Nicholas uh, Wage or Wade. That kept them from being innovative. So I mean there's two sides to every coin. I mean you can't. I'm making a joke.
0: I'm just talking about in terms of IQ and economics. Okay. So I was just making a joke, right? <laughs> but I would say that you can't make any progress in a problem until the cause is accurately identified. My concern with race relations has always been that we don't know exactly yet. And I always dislike and and vehemently oppose the certainty of an answer in the absence of conclusive evidence. Oh, people right? do so, that all so over the place. They do, and and this is you know. It's so disgusting. when I say, well, religion, when people say, well, God created it, that they think that's an answer when it's not. And if people say, well, the disparity between the races is simply white racism, and that's it. Well, you know, that's that's a right. That's a really tough. It's a really tough case to make because there is evidence to the count to the contrary. It doesn't mean there's no such thing as white racism. Doesn't mean there's no such thing as black or Hispanic racism or Asian racism or anything. Those things still exist, of course they do, and they always will, to to, to one degree or another. But, but the contrary saying, is also a ridiculous claim. Well, but but saying it. that this, but but racism is also a challenge. Just saying everything is racism and the races are absolutely identical, and everything. The only disparities between the races can only occur because of, of racism, I don't, th- I, again, I'm no expert, I, I don't believe that we have enough information to state that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Of course not, I agree. And so I think that we need to keep looking, and we need to keep looking at stuff that's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to me. But it Listen, doesn't have I... to be uncomfortable,
4: Stefan, that's what I'm saying, this is why it's not uncomfortable. If you take what, if, if you did a little thought experiment with me, go back in the past and take a genetic scientist back there, in the time when we were all in Africa, and the strong, you know, uh, the strongest, the uh, the most fierce, let's say the ones that had the genes for, uh, you know, aggression, uh, aggression, survived, reproduced. Then th- let's say that the chiefs or the, or the, you know, the the head boss man of the uh, the clan um, in Africa or uh, the tribe said, "Hey, let let's let's uh, do an experiment. Let's see who's got the best genes or what's you know, uh, if we can figure out." you know, who's superior and look, look at the genetic level. Let's just say they, they could do that and they would say, well, here we go. Here's the gene for, you know, the uh, warrior gene for aggression. And you know, these people don't have it. We have it. So, you know, it's, it's in, this is what makes us superior. Let's just say that's the language they use superior. And, but they have no way to imagine that environments, the whole paradox of, of humanity is going to shift as soon as people leave Africa. They have no idea. As far as they're concerned, it's, I have the warrior gene and that's what's going to make me more successful than uh, than you economically and make give me the ability to reproduce and have more wives and et cetera, et cetera. They have no they can't they have no imagination for what could be coming down the line. Okay, well, then we go ahead and we have I can only assume that the weaker left Africa. I don't know. I I mean, who would want to take a hike and go north into the freezing cold unless they lost? So, I mean, unless they were somehow inferior to the ones who stayed. Let's just accept that uh, just for the conversation. I'm not saying that's what happened. Let's say people went north and uh, Wade himself says that the Europeans were by all means in measures uh, uh, taken at the time inferior, just completely backwards, just hadn't didn't have the intelligence uh, compared to the um, the Muslim world and the uh, the East. There was no compa- I mean, they were like East were light years ahead of Europe during the Middle Ages. Same with uh, the Middle East. Okay, so let's say that same genetic time traveling scientist went there. So well, let's see here. Why are the Europeans so far behind? And you know, the the Asians have this great culture and develop this this society. And in the in the, in, in, the, in the in the Middle East, they have writing and all that stuff. Let's see. Well, let's look at the genes here. Oh well, the, the Asians have a gene for this and this. You know, this loyalty, this you know togetherness. They they're very. Uh, Loyal to the group, and they work together. And the, the Europeans, you know, oh, they live far apart. They don't, they you know, they don't have that sort of gene. So here we go. This is why the, the Asians are superior. This is why uh, the Europeans are not as successful. But then again, at that point in time, it seems like that's how it's always going to be. That is the world. That that is the name of the game. And here are the people, and here are their genetic traits. And that's the end of the story. Then you go, and all of a sudden things shift again. But because because the Europeans, something happened in their environment which promoted the uh, the opposite of what Asia went through. They, they, something happened that pr- promoted individuality in the in the innovation, and, and it was I mean it just chance it happened. There's environmental things where you you know we could sit and wonder what it is, but then the trait that the traits that Europeans had that didn't even come up on the radar when that um, time traveling geneticist studied at that time, all of a sudden becomes the ch- exact traits that push them to the, the, fo- the front of uh, economic success in the world. And so, and so now we we're in that right now, you know, the industrial revolution, the, the enlightenment, all that stuff. So now we have the high IQ, the spirit, plus the um, independent spirit, the spirit of individuality has put, uh, the Europeans so far ahead of, of the Asians, you know, as far as um, Nobel Prizes and scientific discovery and innovation and all that stuff. I mean, but they wouldn't have never imagined that would have been the case if, you know, if you took sort of a litmus test of uh, genetic superiority back in the Middle Ages. So just like that is that trait was is being rewarded economically. The European trait, or maybe the the, the Jewish, the Ashkenazi Jews trait for um you know, whatever it is, deferral, gratification, I don't know, is rewarded now. We don't know what it's going to be like a thousand years from now and what traits will be rewarded. I mean, it, I think it's to say that IQ, which rewards sort of abstract thinking, is one of them being able to think fast, being able to um, think conceptually and stuff like that, to being saying that that's the end all and end all, and there's no other. Uh, There's no other. I mean, it just shows a lack of imagination on the part of the people that 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 think that. I I can't say that. Like you were saying, Stefan, you can't go ahead and say anything for sure. And I think everyone's making that same mistake. Well, here we go. This is how the world's divided. These are the races. These are the genes. There's the warrior gene. There's the the IQ gene. And there's the you know. And that's how you know. Now we got to think about how we're going to make heads or tails of this world we've just inherited with all. It's just. It's it's sort of myopic in a sense, like in the same way that the people back then and in a long time ago in Africa, before humanity left Africa, thought, well, here we are. We're the warriors. We are superior. I mean, I just don't see how it, it, you can take one thing and just, um, that which is tested by an IQ test and say, this is the, will lead humanity to success. This is success here economically. This is reproductive success. When, in fact, the European world was on the, the, the verge of destroying each other. We were on the verge of extinction, and that was Westerners, Europeans, high IQ. We were on the verge of blowing each other up with nuclear weapons. I don't know how that's successful. I mean, so <laughs> that's my rant. I'm sorry.
0: Well, and the other thing, too, is that um, let's say that, that Europeans and Asians did end up with higher IQs because of adverse conditions. Well, that, that's because of an unbelievable amount of suffering. Right it, it's because that's so many true. so many people died. Like why, why do polar bears have white skins? because all of the non-white-skinned polar yeah. bears died? Yeah, right? I mean, the, the amount like, oh, it's hard to say, oh, it's superior because millions and millions of, of people had to die in order to select for greater cognitive capacity. I mean, God, I'd rather have stayed in Africa. I mean, God,' it's like that's no, that's no fun. Um, I just was looking up something here. Uh, I was really, really listening, so I just uh, I looked oh. it up and just glanced at it. <laughs> okay. But um, Jewish average IQ, Ashkenani, um, 115, eight points higher than the generally accepted IQ of their closest rivals, Northeast Asians, 40% higher than the global average IQ of
1: mm-hmm. 79.1. Mm-hmm.
0: And, uh, and this is not constant uh, uh, because... Um, uh, Ashkenazi visual spatial IQ scores are only mediocre. Uh, they're actually below average. Ninety-eight in in um, one study, but um, verbal IQ, <laughs> mm-hmm. verbal IQ, um, verbal reasoning, comprehension, working memory, and mathematical skill. Nineteen fifty-eight study of Yeshiva students discovered a median verbal IQ of one hundred twenty-five point six. Like holy shit! Yeah, I mean that that's like, <laughs> I mean that's like. Robot overlords of of, of language, right. and um, and of course this is why I mean was it twenty seven percent of Nobel prizes have gone to point two five percent of the world's population, but on the other hand <clears throat> say oh well that makes them superior. On the other hand, there does seem to be higher neurosis, instability, and mental illness to some degree uh, oh. among um, uh, among the um, Ashkenazi Jews. Exactly. So it's you know a- everything is everything is costs and benefits everything. Is costs and benefits. Do you ever read, uh, like, do you ever
4: read uh, uh, Notes from the Underground by Dostoevsky? Oh, yeah. Okay, you know how he talks, and this is the most interesting thing I've, uh, uh, it just, I love this part of the book. He talks about acute consciousness. You remember that? I can't, it's been so many years. Well, he, he says, I, I got the quote here, and this, and when we're talking about, you know, the flip side of the coin, there's high IQ, genes for high IQ, let's just say there's a gene for high IQ. Those genes... The, they have negative – there's, there's a, more than one effect for every biological, you know, for every protein in your body, you know. And we don't know all those things. But I, I'm just kind of entertaining what would be the negative things for IQ, you know, a high IQ, which you've already talked about, you know, depression, maybe um, anxiety. Anxiety, neuroses. Yeah, neuroses. Yeah. Here's one from Dostoevsky. Ready? He says, um, <laughs> well, he says, uh, well, such a person – Okay, with people who know how to revenge themselves and to stand up for themselves in general, how's it done? Why when, why when they are possessed, let us suppose, by the feeling of revenge, then for the time there is nothing else but that feeling left in their whole being? Such a gentleman simply dashes straight for his object like an infuriated bull with his horns down and nothing but a wall to stop him. Okay, and then he says, well, such a direct person I regard as the real normal man as his tender mother nature wished him to see him when she graciously brought him into being. I envy such a man till I'm green in the face. He is stupid. <laughs> then he says the antithesis, the antithesis of the normal man is the man of acute consciousness. So he talks about inertia and I, I'm assuming that he has experienced this himself. He's obviously a very intelligent man, but where you, you can, uh, the inertia where you can kind of see every such situ- the, the, the pros and cons of everything. and, how the, the sort of uh, the futility of doing an, a set action because at the end of the day like, what 's the point, point? and it causes inertia, which is a stop of action, and he says this is and this was his one of the main parts of his epic rant in uh, notes of Underground, where he wishes he was more simple minded that he could be you know that uh, someone who could actually move, not have inertia, get something done, and do something, and this has a lot of echoes of um, uh, Eric Hoffer is a true believer when he divides people into men of action and men of um, mm. words. But I, this, is just a, this is just me talking to you and sharing this inter- thought. I mean,
0: it doesn't really mean anything. But no, I listen. Thought- I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it's the old saying that anyone who thinks that money solves problems has never had a lot of money. Right. Oh. There is there is this grass is greener thing. Oh, man, if I was smarter, if I was prettier, if I was richer, if I was whatever, younger. I mean, people have this this belief that there's some magical way. Like let me okay, can I can I tell you something completely shallow and ridiculous? Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so I started losing my hair pretty young, right? No. And I had uh I had a couple of friends. Man, they had great hair. Mhm. Like Like, holy shit, great hair. Like, hair like... I remember one guy I was working with, good-looking guy. He had this beautiful blonde hair. And, you know, it was parted sort of just off to one side. It hung down these little locks over his... Like, they were just half going into Superman's little question mark of their own. Anyway, so once we were... uh, but This is when I was working up north for gold panning and all that. Mm -hmm. And um, once this guy and I were... Uh, fighting around, wrestling by the water, and uh, we we both ended up in the water. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me tell you something weird. This guy had such unbelievable hair that he he all he did was he just rubbed it with a towel. Right? Really? And and his hair, it's like this Leslie. Like in in one lesson Nielsen or whatever his name was uh, in one of the uh, airplane movies, you know he gets blown oh, yeah, up and yeah. he goes, and then he gets up and his hair is perfect. Like literally, you could I could I was fascinated. I watched this guy's hair dry, and it drew back into like a perfectly quaffed like like Pierce Brosnan like or something. <laughs> like no gel no bed yeah. like it just it's like a, like this this blonde right. helmet of godliness yeah on his hair. And I love the friends who are like other friends you could look and you're like it wasn't. It wasn't like there was <laughs> this one guy um, in, in my high school. His hairline was so low. Like so he had, this, he had this beard that sort of went like started an inch below his eyes. He had these really bushy eyebrows and then his hairline two inches above that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, he, he could never have let it grown out or he basically would have just been thrown bananas. But um, I had friends who just had this great hair. And and you knew like so you'd look at the picture. I think it comes through the maternal line. You look at the picture of their their mother's father, or you'd meet maybe their grandparents because it's when we were pretty young. And you know the, the the mom's dad would have this like unbelievable shock of like perfect silver hair, like the the full on Richard Gere. Really, and and I'd be like. Fuck me. Are you kidding me? I'm starting to lose my hair when I'm 18 years old or 19 years old or whenever the hell it was. And these guys are 70 and they still got their hair. And I used to think like, oh, man, you know, I, but I don't care about it now. But, but back then it was like, oh, man, if you know, what, what do I have to do? Who do I have to blow to keep my hair? <laughs> right? Right. And, um, of course, I knew if I took enough female hormones, my hair would all grow back. But that would cause a huge amount of other trouble. But um, and I, I never wanted to get like transplants or you know I know a guy who's taken Rogaine and has managed to hang on to his hair. I just I don't want to do any of that crap. But I remember thinking you know what if in the shock of the first, are you kidding me? <laughs> right? It's like oh man, you know if I only got to keep my hair, what a great life I had. Pretty good hair when I was young. I like oh that what a great life that would be. Mm-hmm. Like that that would be a problem free life. And of course that's insane. But we have this belief that that you just ah. If I just had this, then everything would be great. And so we look at, you know, people who have got a lot of money or, or great singing voices or they're super handsome or pretty or whatever. It's, ah, you know, what a – but my God, I mean, the older you get, the great thing that you realize is that every benefit is just a problem in disguise. Right. I have, I have been incredibly benefited by having no hair or little hair. I mean, it's been incredibly beneficial to me. How's I that? mean, Oh, my God. On so many levels. First of all, time. Oh, yeah. Well, that's one. I mean, how long does it take? I mean, I remember this, um, the woman who played Catherine Janeway on Star Trek, one of the Star Trek movies. I mean, she she got together once with Patrick Stewart, the guy who played um, Jean-Luc Picard. And she said, basically, you get to live twice as long as I do because you won't believe how much time it takes to get my hair done for this TV show. Hmm. And because it's always got to look the same from scene to scene, they've got to keep tucking it in and spraying it down. And it's just crazy, right? Whereas he's, you know, (laughs) got nothing to, so in terms of time, oh my God, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Um, in terms of keeping me, Sexually unavailable to really shallow people. Oh, I'm not saying I loved it when I was younger, but looking back in hindsight, what a fantastic thing it was because I I think Jennifer Aniston was once, uh, I read some interview with her. I'm not going to say why, but let's just say, um, and she was saying, you know, well, I, you know, I want a a good looking guy with a full head of hair, right Mm -hmm. now. I think she's what she's she's in is she in her 40s? She's still unmarried and she got divorced by Brad Pitt like a decade or so ago. And she's had a series of relationships with good looking guys with full heads of hair. Yeah, like how ridiculous a human being can you be? Where you say, Well, it's literally like saying, Well, I you know, I want to I'll only date a woman who's at least a D decap.'" when you're in your 40s. Like, you should have outgrown that stuff by the time you're 14, let alone 40, right? <laughs> yeah. And hair is the same for men as tits are for women. This is my fundamental belief. And this is really the essence of philosophy. <laughs> yeah. No. So a, a guy with a great head of hair is like a woman with, with big tits. If, you know, guys like that. And apparently they do. She's 45 years old. Thanks, Mike. He's pretending that he had to look that up. Um, but uh, so if so, I basically have tiny tits. Now, tiny tits are fine. If you're slender, right, you don't want to be overweight with no boobs. If you're overweight and you have giant boobs, then that's another matter, I guess, for some men's level of attractiveness. But um, if you you have no hair and you're slender or at least lean or, or fit or whatever, I think that's fine. But if you're overweight and fat, that's like being overweight with small boobs, right? So that's sort of my basic theory. And women love... Guys with great hair and guys love women with big boobs. Again, that's a general stereotype and all that kind of stuff. But um, I lost my boobs. That's really what I'm trying to say. Started off with great boobs, lost them in my late teens or started losing them. And then I think it was all pretty much gone by the time I was 30 or so. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been great because, man, talk to women who've got big boobs. Mm -mm -mm. They have an ambivalent relationship (laughs) to those Uh, chest nuggets, as you can imagine, Um, uh, the fun bags, the dirty pillows, they have their particular challenges. Um, And I I know for a fact that there are women who didn't want to date me because I was balding or bald. And at the time, of course, it was like, oh, man. But in hindsight, looking back, oh, my God, would it have been terrible? It's a weeding out process. Oh, my God. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, It is a weeding out process because, look, (laughs) any woman, any man who won't date a woman because she doesn't have big boobs is not a woman. It's not a man that woman wants to date. Right. Fundamentally. I mean, you look over at the women who are hot and, and you're like, oh, wow, they get all this attention and wow, that would be great and so on. But the problem is, is that it's like having a huge amount of money. Who do you know who your friends are? Right. And if you're really physically that attractive. And it doesn't have to be boobs, whatever it is, right? If you're really physically that attractive, who's into you for you, right? And so for me, losing my hair was an incredible benefit because then
4: you're not gonna was, have guys that are gonna hang around with you. You're not gonna have guys that are gonna hang around with you just because you get you know hot chicks with you too. Because that's gonna weed out those type of friends, you know?
0: Yeah, and look, I mean, I, I uh, if you want to see a picture of me when I was, I think, eighteen or nineteen. I, I mean, I looked it. like someone out of a boy band. I was like a I, – I, I think it's the truth about Stefan Molyneux. I used that as a thumbnail. Yeah, I, was a, I, I don't know if you've seen that picture. I was yeah. a good-looking kid. Yeah. Like, holy crap. I would to hit that. Wait, I think it did. Was that but, a, teen- um, a teenager? Yeah. It was, that was my late teens, I think, yeah. 19 or so. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, I was like a great-looking kid. Now, if I'd kept those looks, you know, and, and I mean, I'm still – happy with the way I look and all that. But if I'd kept that hair and, and all I mean, <clears> of it, <throat> I think it would have been uh, much more tempting to be some kind of player, you know, some kind of, you know, and that, you know, I mean, if i if I'd met my wife and been some player, well, she wouldn't be my wife, right? <laughs> she'd, she'd have yeah. like uh she'd have like s- slack be gone spray straight into my eyeball or something. So, right. So I just, this is a weird way to, to sort of, but the IQ and and success and this and that, like I'll give one last example. Like, I, I went I took my daughter today to um, uh, we were outside playing in the snow. Went to get some uh, hot chocolate. Now in the cafe where we got the hot chocolate, the TV was tuned to curling. Do you do you have any idea what that is?
4: Curling is. Is it when they have the uh, the ball in that sort of handheld whip like thing and they throw
0: it against the wall? No, that's I don't, I don't know. What curling no, is. I think that's Indiana Jones. I think. Oh. I think <laughs> no, curling is when they've got that weight and they slide it. I don't know much about it, but they slide this weight down the Stephon? ice. Oh, yeah. Sorry, you cut oh. off for a sec. Go ahead. Oh, they slide this weight down the ice, and there's a guy sort of down on his his knees and hands, and he's aiming it, and you have to knock other weights out of circles on the ice and there are guys the scrubbing i think affects the speed they scrub it or then don't scrub it to make it go faster or slower yeah i don't think i ever watched that but i think i know what you're talking about well if you had watched it you probably would have only watched about 20 to 25 seconds <laughs> before narcolepsy overcame you and your soul attempted to astral travel to get out of the range yeah. of the boringness that is known as curling <laughs> i mean I don't find sports that I even enjoy playing that exciting to watch. Mm. But that seems to me like watching paint dry in slow motion. But, you know, and so Mm. but but there are people like screaming, like they're screaming at the curling weight as it slowly wends its way across (laughs) the ice to bounce into something in slow motion. They're like mental about it. And they painted themselves the colors of the t- like. So part of me is like, that's ridiculous, and part of me is like, wow, must be a cool life to get excited by that stuff.
4: That yeah, that and and in sports, like being a spectator, you know, for your college favorite college. I never really got that either, you know. But it, but I, I look at people who who sit there and they have their favorite team they follow. They have their regular. Uh, weekend uh, session with their buddies and watch it or follow it and I'm like, it looks like they're having a great time, you know, and I, I just what,
0: why can't you know, that is a great, looks like a great pastime for them, you know yeah. and, uh, look <clears throat> basically about 90% of human activity is contained in two words are you ready? Uh, go, go for it <clears throat> I gotta clear my throat for this, are you ready? Uh, Yay costume! <laughs> <laughs> oh, right Yeah, this costume is the best. This costume is so much better than the other costume. This costume with the red is infinitely superior Mm -hmm. to this costume which has polka dots. Yay red, bad polka dots. Yay green, bad blue. That costume, yay. That costume, (laughs) that is. I mean, it was Stefan. There was a a
4: time when I, when I was in second grade and third grade. This was like nineteen eighty six or something. I mean, I was really into my home, the Cleveland Browns, my home sports team. And in my in any given Sunday, whether they won or lose, if they won, (coughs) it would make my day. I mean, it was a great day. It was like felt like the sun was out, and and nothing could be better in the world. And if they lost, I mean, it's like the clouds come over, and it's it's just a miserable sort of. Day And I'm dep- I mean, I used to cry for crying out loud when I was a kid and they lost in the playoffs. Man, it was heartbreaking. But then what happened was I, I, I noticed that, wait a second, some of the players from the Browns have been traded and now they're playing on the other team. Wait, what? Wait a sec. we We're playing against, you know, my, my favorite heroes of the, of the team back in the day, you know, like all of a sudden they're all gone and they're playing on the other team with the other shirts on. I'm like, wait a second. It was really confusing to me. It's like, well, how can I be so passionate about the Browns anymore? They have just completely changed. <laughs> because like, of the costume. Yeah. The
0: costume is the same. And, Yay, and,
4: costume. And it was no longer like they represent me. They're you know, I used to think they lived in, in, in Cleveland and were born and raised there. I mean I was like, they represent me and where yeah. I'm from, where I they grow from the same grass as me, you know, but no, they're
0: just passing through. Yeah. Just passing through.
4: It, it killed everything for me. I mean, after a while I just okay well i I don't care you know but by that time i was you know middle school and i had you know other interests but but i remember the feeling i had of of, of the joy of watching getting into it you know with my family and stuff and and i don't have that anymore i don't have that feeling anymore that kind of in and that's a loss now you got something much better man which is
0: yay truth right costume yay truth but I, don't get to, I don't get
4: to sit in my living room and chair about it with, with like five, 50 different people. You know, it's just
0: – it's different. So you're I, saying I should have more debates? Is that – Yes. More, <laughs> that what you're more saying?
4: debates yeah. with mass people on Skype in lots of faces on the screen.
0: Yeah. That would be great. <laughs> yeah. And look, I mean, I've – I get it. Like, I mean, the, in the – oh, God, 90s – I think 92, Toronto won baseball. i'm I'm gonna say the world cup but that's wrong yeah world series world series right and uh i remember i was living in a house with four gay guys and a lesbian
1: nice
0: when i was going to uh do my this is i think i was just starting my master's or uh, that was where i was doing my master's and um yeah that'd be right i was 26 it's 22 years ago 22 2014 92 yeah 92 and I remember I had a sore throat then too, but anyway, and so I couldn't cheer much. But um, I was sitting there and, and I got into it and I was like, I really want this team to win. Want this team to win. Yay, costume, local costumes. Although I must say that the, um, <laughs> the Toronto, and, and you can look this up to, to, to validate that I'm not insane. Well, not mm. for this anyway, but for the longest time, because they're, they're, they're Blue Jays, right? So they've got this picture of a Blue Jay. I swear to God, I thought it was a dolphin. I thought it Blue like Jay maybe was the name of some Toronto dolphin that was in an aquarium nearby, which is a weird name for a dolphin. But anyway, so the I logo look like a dolphin. The logo looks like a dolphin. Look up Toronto Blue Jays if you squint and you're retarded and from England. <laughs> it really does look. So, um, Mike is uh, <laughs> Mike. Is there anything you'd like to add <laughs> to my? <laughs> Stop. Robust senses. See, Mike played hockey <laughs> a for a, a long time. Mike, you played hockey? Sorry. I played hockey for like 15
2: years, so I'm well-versed in the sports lingo. And <laughs> Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> it looked like a dolphin. You know, use that as No, we can't use that <laughs> as a logo for copyright reasons, but if we did, everybody would see that I was a man losing his boobs who thought that Blue Jays had a dolphin as a logo. <laughs> That's the entire description for this show. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> But you were, we'll get three Blue Jays fans here who won't have any idea why this is <laughs> in the digs.
4: And you were pretty young though. Are you talking like you were under ten years old? I was old eleven.
0: Or... Oh. yeah, I was eleven when I oh. first came to Canada.
4: Hmm. Yeah. So I, I just that like the uh, those sorts of simple pleasures, I guess,
0: and that's what. Can I'm I tell you one to... other story about coming to Canada? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Mike, you might want to stay on for this because <laughs> you might enjoy this. too. Oh, no. <laughs> so. In England, there's a game called rounders, which is similar to baseball, but obviously infinitely superior. And in rounders, I, I'm a I'm a good hitter. Like, I, I've always been a good hitter for ball games. Uh, I played cricket. I played rounders. Uh, and uh, I played tennis and squash. But especially with a bat, I'm a good hitter. Yeah. And I'm a lefty, right? So um, I'm a southpaw for that. So yeah. So anyway, in rounders... You hit the ball, but if you think you'll hit it better, you get three pitches. And if you can hit the ball, and you don't have to run. Because if you think you'll hit it better next one, you just don't run. And they get the ball, and they give it to you again, right? Mm. Yeah. That is not exactly true in baseball. Oh,
4: no. In baseball,
0: as you may or may not know.
4: <laughs> okay, I, can, I think I can guess what, what happened here.
0: <laughs> so... <laughs> I I am in colony hell school, right? So when when we first came to Canada, we lived with um, a relative in Whitby and I was in grade eight. And then when we came to Toronto, they sank me back down to grade six because they were really into stay with your peer group and all. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of a rough school. Like I remember in grade six, the the first recess I was at, like everybody just went like howling, like bats out of hell, went howling out into the. And 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 the boys all organized this game called punch the girls in the groin. Oh, I know that game. I mean, oh, God Almighty! And I was like, wh- wh- which layer of hell have I emerged into? I guess this was not something. Anyway, so we we played uh, baseball for the first time. And I always had a problem because I grew up really poor. We I had no glove. I couldn't afford a glove, and I couldn't borrow anyone's glove because nobody else was left-handed. Oh, yeah. So I'd have this thing. I'd have to catch it and then take the glove, take the ball out of the glove, throw the glove down, and then throw the ball with oh, the right hand because – anyway, because the wait, gloves Wait, you all, batted lefty and you threw with your right hand? No, no. I threw with my left hand. Oh. But I didn't have a left-handed glove, right? So a left-handed glove is supposed to be in your right hand because you catch with your right hand, so you throw back with your left hand. But everyone had a left-handed glove because they were all right-handed throwers. Yeah, I see. Okay. So I'd have to catch the ball with my left-handed glove – I'd have to pull the ball out, get the glove off, and then throw the ball because I I threw like a spastic Japanese short circuiting robot girl with my right hand. But I could throw with my left hand anyway. <laughs> so I'm 11 years old, and I am playing baseball for the first time. And I've already been out in the field where everyone's doesn't want <laughs> like they want to hit to me because I have to do this switcheroo to throw the ball anyway so i was not peaking in my athletic status at this point but i thought uh you know what no problem i'm going to show these colonists exactly what's what because i know i'm a good hitter i'm a good hitter man Mm -hmm. and so they threw the ball crack i had a good hit man it was up straight into the sun like nobody could see it basically just this giant gestapo interview and um of course, all the all the kids are yelling, all the boys, run, run, <laughs> you limey bastard. <laughs> and uh, I just said, no, no, I, I think I'll just take the next one. Oh, are you serious? <laughs> oh, man. You know, so, they so don't you have an argument. You're arguing with the with guy. The newcomers, this is what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, if we have been playing cricket, man. Oh, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> next one you know didn't you watch baseball though didn't you watch america first baseball? time did i watch baseball god no first time i went out on the ice i found it incredibly difficult incredibly difficult i rented my first pair of skates and i went out on the ice i couldn't even stand up i couldn't understand it do you know what really helps what? if you take the skate guards off which apparently oh, you do oh, when no. you rent skates If you take the skate guards off, I must say that after that I found it significantly easier except for all the – because I dressed up in my best because the only thing I'd ever seen for skating was figure skating where everybody used to be dressed up. So I dressed up in my nice long boarding school pants uh, and a nice ruffled shirt and uh, all the the hockey kids as I was sort of grabbing my way along with my skate guards on all the hockey kids came in low with their elbows out and went,
4: Hey, silver pants. Pfft, and
0: exactly. down I went. So it did take a little bit of getting used to some of the, uh, newer modes of interaction and in sports, uh, in these here colonies. But on the plus side, it was the worst winter they'd ever had. And I just love snow. So that was fantastic.
2: <laughs> I have not heard these stories
0: before. So. <laughs> this is great. I think I'll stop there. <laughs> um,
2: I, I have to say something. Um, I, I I didn't believe it, but looking at this Blue Jays logo, I could see where you'd get dolphin out of that, I must say. I'm,
0: I'm telling you. I was you. skeptical. I'm telling you. I
2: was skeptical. I see but...
0: things that other people are unwilling to see.
2: <laughs> now, if you – IQ
0: <laughs> and dolphins. <laughs> now,
2: Steph, if you you know have a couple shots of vodka, punch yourself in the eye and then squint through that eye and look at it. The logo actually does kind of look like Charles Murray too, but that's all. <laughs> <laughs> that's the connection there.
4: That's that's the connection. That's a I wonderful think, I think his next circle. book is called
0: Dolphin Overlords Should Rule Us All. So uh, that will be a bit of a... Speciesist. Of a <laughs> what yeah. time is it? Shit, have we only done two callers? We have. Mike, are you leaving me in charge of the show? What are you, crazy?
2: I know. This is not going to last.
0: <laughs> anyway, I'll let you get to the next caller, Stefan. I
4: just wanted to say um, that I have, the, as far as... Uh, The IQ and the I think uh, the most important thing is the principles, and I think uh, yeah, might you have definitely I consider you a very intelligent person, and your principles alone have have helped me a lot in my career. And so, thank you know I think because I don't I don't think it takes that much of an intelligence to follow good solid principles. I mean, I I would imagine it doesn't, but it might take intelligence to. Do all the work, conceptual work, and all that sort of thing, and you know, b- do all the Einstein work, and I, I, but I think once certain principles have been derived and brought down from the people who have the disposition to be able to do it within a lifetime, uh, I think it's cr- vastly helpful to everybody. And
0: I, well, I'll tell you this, you know, and I, I, I sort of feel the urge not to justify, it, but to sum up where my thinking is with regards to IQ, mm-hmm. um, whether we include race or or not in that is. is not fundamental to my particular perspective i believe that philosophy disproportionately benefits the less intelligent yeah because because smart people will figure out a lot of things on the fly mm-hmm. and i believe that philosophy will vastly disproportionately benefit the less intelligent like for instance i believe that the free market benefits the less intelligent. And by the less intelligent, I don't – again, this is not a negative. It's not a positive for superiority. And How I'll is say that this, score be,
4: lower on an IQ test?
0: Yeah. I mean – Right. That's it. I mean if you look at people, let's say – it doesn't matter what race they are. let's people who have an IQ of, of 80. Mm-hmm. Or let's just go with 70. People have an IQ of 70. I mean in the absence of the free market, it's a pretty rough life. But with a free market, you know, they get TVs, they get good health care, they get jobs, they, you know, there's lots of things, like vastly better. Their best qualities will be come to the surface to be the most useful in a free market. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I think We don't so know I what those that are. That we, we can't see. We don't know what they are. We can't see absolutely. Them, we're not But there's, a- there is a significant um, value… Economic value, there is a significant economic value in people who have a lesser IQ. Whether it's genetic or not, whether it's racial, it doesn't, doesn't fundamentally matter. Right. But the less intelligent you are, the more principles you need. Because smart people can sort of suss things out in the moment and can analyze and are nimble and so on. And so they'll kind of get by, although smart people definitely do better with principles. But less intelligent people disproportionately benefit from principles. And I will tell you this, and I've said this before too, I do not consider myself to be innately that intelligent. And I'm not just making that up, and this isn't any kind of false humility. Not that I often get accused of false humility. (laughs) But when I look back at my mental life before philosophy, it was an incoherent Mass. Mm-hmm. I was, as Ayn Rand describes, people without principles, I was just a big giant grab bag of whatever caught my fancy, whatever I'd been exposed to, whatever happened to life at, like at the moment, whatever bullshit course I was pursuing in order to justify any particular sexual lust or or economic desire or whatever it was, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I would whatever I would talk myself into in the moment to justify whatever it is that I felt like doing on a whim. I mean I had no I had no distinguishing intellectual capacity of any kind. I mean, I love to write, and I remember my uh, in grade seven, I wrote a novel. Or grade, yeah, grade seven or grade eight, I can't remember. I wrote a novel called "By the Light of an Alien Sun," which was about a. It wasn't a whole novel. It was just a science start of a science fiction novel that my teacher actually read to the entire class, wherein there was a very thinly veiled description of a low gravity kiss fest with a, a girl whose name rhymed with a girl I liked in class. That she. <laughs> Stop reading because everyone got too embarrassed. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But um, w- when when I got philosophy, when I got principles, I got intelligent, so to speak. I and so I believe that I would not have have any kind of distinguished intellectual career. Distinguished, I'm not even sure what I'm doing can remotely be called distinguished. But I would not have had any kind of public intellectual life in the absence of philosophical principles. And so when I say that people – and I've never had my IQ tested and I don't think I'll ever bother because it doesn't matter. Um, Because anybody who would accept my arguments based on having a high IQ would be like someone dating me because I had nice hair. Like that's Mm -hmm. not how it works, right? But – I view myself as an example of somebody not particularly intelligent who, through principles, found the value of thought and found the certainty of thought and found the efficaciousness of thought. And so to me, principles are like experience in building things. Like I've never built a house. And can you imagine? I'm not particularly good with my hands as far as that stuff goes, to say the least. I I can change a light bulb and, and, and batteries and that's about it. So if I tried to build a house, it would be so incredibly frustrating for me without instruction. If I just tried to build a house with I mean, I can't imagine I'd get that far in it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, somebody who understands and knows the principles of building a house, even if they've never built a house before, if they studied architecture or if they've studied whatever, they shadowed someone in the trades, or or they have someone on there telling them what to do. It's an immensely more pleasurable experience, right? Infinitely more pleasurable an experience rather than reinventing the wheel yourself and making all the mistakes, having to pull stuff down again, putting things the wrong way around and and forgetting certain things and so on, right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, having a successful life is like building a house. And most people try to do it just by throwing bricks at the ground. And they maybe build half a wall and then it falls over and it's just a mess. And they spend most of their energies just trying to prop up something that should have stayed up because they knew stuff but they didn't know stuff. And so for me, philosophy is teaching people the principles of how to build a house. Mm -hmm. And many, many more people will build houses that way because very few will build them just because – they feel like it, or they want to, but they don't really know what they're doing. they're just so frustrated with the mistakes and so i I genuinely believe that people who are less intelligent, and I put myself in that category, people who are less intelligent will disproportionately benefit from the spread of philosophy i mean I, and so I have, you know. yeah so so why why while the race and i q stuff and all I think it's fascinating, I don't think I could be doing more to try and help the poor or to try to help the less intelligent than doing what it is that I'm doing. And I believe that the spread of philosophy will vastly disproportionately benefit the poor, which is one of the reasons why the death of philosophy has contributed to an increasing disparity between rich and poor. Mm -hmm. And uh, so even if I were like, we should never stop trying to in- improve the human condition we should never stop trying to help people make the most use out of their minds i don't care if everything turns out to be 100% genetic we should never stop doing that because right. genes are also influenced epigenetically through experience that's another thing yeah exactly and 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 we sure know that children who are raised reasonably will likely end up 3 to 5 points more intelligent at the minimum at the minimum So in putting forward peaceful parenting, we are improving our capacity for IQ. In putting forward principles, we are enhancing people's capacity. I don't think, obviously, I don't really think listening to this show will raise your IQ, but I do think it will allow you to harness what you have got incredibly more efficiently. I mean, having a trainer makes a vast difference in how well you do in a sport. Mm Mm-hmm. And by trying to be a trainer to people's thinking, it is going to vastly improve their intelligence and their capacity to succeed and achieve in the world. So let's say it was 100% genetic. I would still be doing what I'm doing, and I think it's the best thing that I can do to raise the collective intelligence of the planet. If it was 100% environmental, I'd still be doing exactly the same thing but it would be it would it would be faster right <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to to do what i'm doing so i do find the race and iq stuff very interesting in terms of examining and understanding where society is now potentially again nobody has any final answers but i think that people's fears about iq disparities whether it's within or between races or among the entire human race doesn 't fundamentally matter, we need to give people as much rational and critical thinking as possible mm-hmm. and that will raise their intelligence as much as possible and more than that we we can 't even imagine, but uh, I do think we need to know where we 're starting from, and so I read with great interest uh, the, the stuff that is coming down the pipeline. Uh, as far as uh, iq goes both race and and non-race iq I, I think it's fascinating and i think it's something we need to grit our teeth and and delve into and uh, that way we can continue to to hold high the banner of rational inquiry and because i mean i used to work in the field of diversity many moons ago so um i you know it is it is a great challenge for me uh, given how I was raised, and and given the race egalitarianism that is is pretty much dogma, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means it's right. It, it, it's put forward without counter arguments. Mm-hmm. It is a great challenge for me to to read and to to learn this stuff. It goes against a lot of the grains uh, in which. But and, and again, I, but that's that's the job. That's that's the gig. You know, that's that's the deal. We want to be critical thinkers. We have to look at skepticism around things like global warming. We have to look even at skepticism around things like evolution, which I find very weird, but I'll still look into it. And we have to look around uh, race realism and so on. These things have to be explored Where, where they lead. I don't know. Uh, but um, we cannot exclude entire disciplines like biology, evolution, and physical anthropology just because it goes against political correctness. It doesn't mean that they're right, but it means that they definitely have to be listened to because they're part of the pantheon of human thought. So, Anyway, I really, really appreciate the call. Um, I guess we can time for one more relatively quick one. We've already been in two and a half hours already, but yeah, man, call back in any time. It was a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Stefan. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: All
2: right. Up next is Ed. Ed wrote in and said, Why does it always seem like people with issues are drawn to me for count, drawn to me, and then leave me when they don't need me anymore? Friends, relationships alike, this seems to happen quite frequently. Is it something I'm doing, or are most people just using others in their own self interest?
0: Hmm. Can you give me an example?
5: Uh, Yeah, so I just a lot of like my friends that. I hang out with they're kind of that I'll keep in touch with them but when there's like distance between us we don't really communicate anymore and it becomes less and less until it's basically just like once every month or so that we talk and I never have any deep conversations with them you know it's uh it's just frustrating because like you feel lonely after a while um, I don't know, like past girlfriends too. Like, um, they just like I I don't know I I think you you know what I mean. Well, you've talked about a couple of different things, so I'm not
0: sure what to zero in on. So people. Use you as a sounding board for their problems, and then vanish when those problems are solved. Or, yeah, you don't have a lot of deep conversations in general.
5: It, it's both. It, it's definitely okay. when pe- people uh, feel like their problem solved, they'll leave. They'll like kind of distance themselves. But I still want to have those deep conversations because I value them, and I have my own issues that I like to talk to people about and whatnot. Right. Right. Okay. And then they don't really seem to care, you know, and will maintain the distance, I guess. So for – okay, so if I understand it rightly, you and
0: correct me where I'm wrong, but people view deep conversations like I cut my hand, I need to go to an emergency and get stitches, right? Yeah. And then next week you're like, hey, let's go back to emergency." And they're like, no, that's fixed. (laughs) Why would I go back to it? Like, I I I haven't cut my hand again, so why why on
5: earth would I go back to emergency, right? I wouldn't say that I I go back to them to talk about their problems after we solve the problem. It's more like they just don't even want to really talk anymore. Like, I have, like, a couple friends that, like, went away to college, and um, we used to be really close friends, and they'd have a lot of problems while they were here. But when they went away, they didn't have to deal with them anymore. And now we don't really talk. And I, I'm kind of like, every- wait, wait, sorry. When you say you don't really talk, I'm sorry to interrupt. <clears throat> do you mean that
0: you don't really talk at all, or you don't really talk about anything important?
5: Uh, it, it's basically we don't we don't talk at all. And then when we do, it's nothing important. So it's uh, it's frustrating when I do talk to them because then it's just like, how are you? What have you been doing? And it just doesn't get anywhere. And then as as, as soon as I try to at any depth they just kind of uh, stray away from it i guess you know right right and what what is their
0: emotional what's your perception of their emotional experience when you try to bring up depth with them
5: i think that i i think they're not being empathetic towards like my own uh desires in the relationship i guess like um, they're not like under. They don't understand that like I might want to actually talk about things that I'm confronting. Like a lot of stuff I've been listening to you in the past couple of months has really helped me, and I want to say like you guys are doing a really great job with that, and I appreciate it. But you know, I I think about this stuff a lot. You know, like the anarchy and and that stuff, and I I like talking to it about them, but like they don't seem to understand how important it is to me. So like they'll kind of listen to it for like ten minutes, fifteen minutes, but then go to something else that they think is more interesting. And I don't really it's just not the stuff that I, I really care for talking about as much. And they don't get that. Like what? What do they want to talk about? Um I just like girls that they're uh sleeping with and uh it, it could it could be anything, like the, the classes they're taking in college or just um, my friends that aren't going to college, like the, their work problems and like the people that they're meeting at work. And it's just like, hmm, it's like trivial, you know. What, what do you think
0: their perception is of depth? In other words, what do they associate depth with? What's their emotional response to depth?
5: Like what? What do you mean by depth? Though, like, um, well, what do you mean about deep topics? Whether it's personal or
0: philosophical or mm-hmm. emotional, w- when you start talking about something that is more deep or more rich or yeah. more important, or what is their emotional response to that? Deep down,
5: um, they they seem they seem to care. Like they they don't like become hostile when I talk about it, but at the same time, they're it comes across as like, okay, yeah, I care because you're my friend or you're my boyfriend or whatever, but I don't know how to help you. And I don't think we should talk about it if I can't do anything or I don't really have time to help you because I don't know what you're talking about. Like they, they don't, um, they'll give me like, like cliches, like, well, things will get better or, you know, or, oh, well, you shouldn't worry so much about the economy, you know, things are okay right now. You know, it's just stuff like that. And it just, like, frustrates me that they just leave it at that, you know. All right. So, so to ask again, what is
0: their emotional experience of these things?
5: Like past, like... Other than what they experience with me when I talk about it? or No, because you've given me a lot of what they say. I'm asking not what they say,
0: but what did they feel? What's their emotional response in their heart of hearts to what it is when, when you bring up something deep or <clears throat> something challenging?
5: Um, see, my friends will, will act genuinely sympathetic and Try to help, but it will lead to and and they 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 care and like they feel. Um, I don't I don't know how to explain it.
0: I, okay, no, this is this is important because I'm trying to have a deep conversation with you, and you're rebuffing me, right? Yeah. Right, because I'm asking you, let's go deep into your friends' hearts, right?
5: Mm-hmm.
0: And you're trying to stay shallow in this, right? Yeah. Which means I'm kind of talking to your friends, not to you, right? Mm, yeah. So let me try it again. What do your friends feel when you start talking about things that are deep or rich or important? Not just to you, but deeper, richer, rich or important in general. What, what do they? What do they feel? What's their emotion?
5: I honestly can't can't say I would know. I I I don't know what they're feeling. I I don't. Get any impression of their like actual emotions. Like okay, they, but they might important. be angry okay. about certain topics, like Well that's not let's not guess, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean it yeah, might right. be space aliens for all we know, but <laughs> yeah. Um Okay, but
0: that's it's important that you you don't know, right? Now we can certainly say that they're not thrilled, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not like some deep tantric stingasm that they're having over these topics, right?
5: Yeah, definitely, yeah.
0: Okay, so it must be some uncomfortable emotion that they're experiencing if they can stand it for 10 minutes and then have to move on, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Are they listening to you when you talk about these things, or are they just kind of glazing and nodding?
5: Yeah, it's it's definitely a glaze and nod reaction. Okay, so if you don't know what they feel, then you'll take it
0: personally. This is the great insight of human relations that – is incredibly liberating if you cannot understand or you don't directly empathize with how other people are feeling when you were talking with them you will generally take their responses to you personally so when i talk about depth let's say 20 years ago when i would talk about depth deep topics with people There would be a little bit of politeness, a little bit of, well, I guess if you're into this stuff, but then there'd be some rolled eyes and, okay, let's move on or, yeah, we got it or whatever, right? And I would say, I guess I'm being inappropriate or maybe I'm being boring or maybe I'm not explaining it in the right way or whatever it is, right? I would take it personally. Or I might think, well, they're being rude or I listened to them for two hours talk about their problems with their dog yesterday and so on, right? But it would be personal, and it would be personal because I was lacking empathy as to their true emotional experience of what I was saying and what it implied. Does this make it I'm not saying this is an answer, but do you sort of get it so far?
5: yeah, I know what you're I know what you're saying when you when you mean that I just i guess because I guess when I listen to them um like vent or want me to put my input into their problems i feel like i'm being empathetic so i that's why i am like confused when you bring that up but you're right because i can't under i when i give my um thoughts into the conversation i don't understand what their emotions are so you're right on that so i'm i'm confused i guess
0: okay no that's that's good confusion is uh is is progress so and i've talked about this in the show before so i'll keep it brief but for years i had dreams of the tsunami of the giant cloud shredding wave i'd be standing on the beach and i'd have these dreams that the ocean would gather itself up like a watery poseidon standing on the floor of the ocean with his head in the clouds charging at me, these giant waves. And once it took my entire arm off and, and the wave would be coming at me and it would be staggering and enormous and overwhelming and unsurvivable. I couldn't possibly survive that amount of liquid energy cascading down upon me from the very heavens. And I remember watching Deep Impact, there's a scene where this tsunami happens, and I, I talked about it with my therapist, and I journaled about it, and it took me years to understand what that dream meant. And when I understood what the dream meant, I've never, ever had it again. And it's the only repetitive dream that I can really think of. Oh, no, I guess I've had the same, well, the like, it doesn't matter I have another one about college, but the dream was not the dream was trying to teach me empathy for depth, empathy for what depth does to other people. The dream was trying to teach me not how the world was going to overwhelm me, but the dream was trying to teach me how philosophy and self-knowledge appear to other people the dream was trying to teach me how i show up for other people as a giant wave okay not me in particular but how philosophy shows up to other people because philosophy was i was in general always willing to sacrifice anything for philosophy but not many people are which is why there are fewer philosophers than there should be because everybody in the long run needs to be a philosopher, which doesn't mean they have to be original thinkers, but it does mean that they have to know the difference between truth and falsehood and, and stand by it. And what I understood was that I was not understanding what other people were like. And for other people, philosophy Is the erasure of what they call identity. I was very unformed when I was younger. I was very amorphous. I was a ghost in the skin. I had physical shape, but no real mental or emotional shape, as I talked about in the earlier call. So, because I was so broken up as a child, because I suffered such abuse as a child, there was nothing in me that philosophy could break. All that I could be was reassembled. Philosophy couldn't break me because I was already broken. But philosophy could make me from the pieces I was. So philosophy for me was not a destructive force. Philosophy for me was a healing force. It was an assembling force. It was a reconstruction, a resurrection force. It was not, I did not fear death from philosophy, a spiritual death or a mental death, because I was already dead. And so I was like that terminal patient who, knowing that death is imminent, has no fear of a radical cure. Yeah, shoot me up with it. I've heard it's good. I've got nothing to lose. And so because I had been so broken up as a child... Philosophy had no fear for me. I was not afraid of it. It did not threaten me. But this is not true for most people. I mean, most people didn't go through the kind of childhood I went through. But for most people, philosophy is not the only rope that will ever come down the well that might pull them back to the light for most people philosophy is not the last pill that might save you before you turn into a zombie i
5: like i like that that really clicks with me because i growing up like i feel like i was always i only had like a small group of friends all throughout grade school and high school and pretty much still now you know i've only had like three or four really close friends. So like I never really had any like set um, perspectives on the world. You know, I never really like politics. I never even like considered voting because I just knew like I can't vote for something if I don't know the facts about the party or whatnot. So I just never voted, you know, and I, j- I just like, I never had opinions really like solid opinions on it. I didn't have like my, my, like a self identity, you know? And when I started listening to your stuff, like things just started like making more sense. And I like when you say like it gave me the ability to assemble what I, I need to be and who I am. That that makes a lot of sense.
0: Oh yeah. Like I'm all bricks and no house when I was a kid. And so philosophy comes along and says, Wanna make a house? I'm like, Well, I'm just basically standing on a pile of bricks. A house seems pretty good, right? Yeah. Sorry, but that's not how most people, I think, experience philosophy. Because most people have something to lose. Now, it may be false, and if they're going to lose it through philosophy, it is false. But it's the only truth they know. And so, it may be a badly constructed house, but philosophy comes not as a blueprint and an architect to a pile of bricks. For most people... Philosophy comes as a howling storm that will destroy their house.
5: Yeah.
0: And, and they can't admit that to themselves because that would be to destroy the house from the inside out. If you admit that the storm will destroy your house, you become the storm that destroys the house. In other words, if you say, well, truth and depth will destroy who I am, then you've just destroyed who you are because you've admitted that you're false. That that your identity, that your belief system, that your structure, that your culture, that your religion, that your patriotism, that your tribalism is all a lie. The moment that you admit that you are afraid of the truth, you have just suicided your identity. And so this is why your friends don't say, whoa, philosophy, oh, God, keep that away from me. God almighty, deep thinking, self-knowledge, reflection, critical thinking, God, get that shit away from me. They won't say that. That's why they put on the polite mask of it's interesting, then boring. But what would happen to the people you talk to if they dedicated themselves to rational and empirical truth at all costs, no matter what? What would happen to their lives?
5: They'd have to change major parts like their. Careers, even in some cases, and their plans for like the, the future. I guess, like I, I can see it. Like my parents are the hardest because, like, they're I guess they're so set in their their perspectives, you know, that and they're so sure of themselves, and they're they're extremely obstinate to like anything I I say about this stuff. But like my friends, you know, I guess they're still like they're only what like 20 years old so it's it's different for them but they're still like they they had like larger groups of friends whereas like i was just like they were one of my four friends you know where as they had like 20 friends you know or 50 or what you know and they had like a a solid identity for themselves they like say this is what i am and I guess the less you have of that, the easier it is to digest this stuff. For that that's the case for me at least, I think. Have you heard yourself uh, speak?
0: I'm just curious like in terms of recording and playback. Uh
5: yeah, I I say I I know what you're going to say. I I use like words like I guess and I think and stuff like that a lot and I I don't know why I do that.
0: Well, that's not what I was going to say. Okay. You have a kind of monotone. Yes. Which I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out. I, it's a little hard to follow what you're saying because it's all kind of at the same level and in the same way, and it kind of trails off a little. And you know, it's a little hard to connect. If that makes sense.
5: No, you're right. I I do. I definitely do see that, and I I do. Ugh, I guess
0: It's not a criticism. I it, I'm not. It's not. I'm just yeah. I was thinking about it I wanted to share.
5: No, no, I thought. it's fine. I, I I know what you're saying. I I definitely do I try to portray the emotions and what and how I say things, but I, it doesn't come out. I've I've always been like afraid of telling people my opinion because I felt like growing up, like in school, I felt like people were always judging me, especially like my parents and like my my peers. You know, like it. So I, I was always very like, um, reserved. I, I I never shared like what I thought about things with other people until like it really until like the last like two years. I I haven't really. I've never done that. And when did
0: you first go to did you go to daycare when did you first would was your mom stay at home or dad? Uh my mom was, yeah. So how old were you when you went to school?
5: Um it, it was the the usual age. I think it was like six. I went into kindergarten full time, like full day.
0: Okay. And um why am I asking that? Uh I'm not sure. Well, uh, it's because you're talking a lot about in school, which is what you remember more of because you were older. Yeah. But my question would be, how was this stuff with your mom? How was your mom's relationship to your emotions, to your enthusiasms, to your excitements and so on, right?
5: Everything was, it had to have like a a rationality to it and not in an actual rational sense. It was her idea of rational like I like music a lot and I play I play music and all through high school I wanted to go to college for that but they would always say well what can you do with that and they'd always put their two cents in and they've always done that and it always was like in a discouraging way to what I actually like and it it could have been with anything like it's it's discouraging because they they think they know what's best and i i do see certain things that they that i i can say that they did but the way they would say it and it it just wasn't like it wasn't helpful in the long run so i mean it it my characterization
0: of it, which you of course correct if it's not correct, is they didn't exactly oppose it, but they kind of took the wind out of your sails. Yes, it's not like a musician, I'll kill you. Right? No, am they... sure has made many great musicians, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it was more like, well, you know, it's a challenging life. It's important to have a plan B, and eventually, it's just like I can't even rebel, <laughs> I can't move, right?
5: Yeah, they would like they got me a guitar for Christmas one year and it it's like still my favorite thing but like it was they'd still say things like you well you can't go to college for that or Well where do you think you're gonna get with that but then they'd encourage it at the same time. So it was very like contradictive. Like I didn't know if they supported it or if like they were just doing it because they knew it was important but at the same time they it genuinely felt like they disapproved of it
0: well, they do, yeah, maybe it's like it's a fine hobby, but... Uh, exactly. Yes, yes. And how how are their enthusiasms? I mean, I tell you, being, being a stay-at-home dad is nothing like that to teach you about enthusiasm. I mean, my daughter runs everywhere. I've never seen her walk anywhere. Yeah. And if she's not running, she's skipping or cartwheeling or jumping from couch to couch. Like, she, she just doesn't... She doesn't walk anywhere. I mean, that's how, that, that, that level of enthusiasm, I'm a pretty enthusiastic guy, but that level of enthusiasm is is humbling. I'm like, well, I'm not running everywhere. What's wrong with me? You know, I mean, uh-huh. oh yeah, I'm 48. My calf hurts.
2: Anyway, but... Um, she's so excited to talk at times that breathing is
0: a hindrance. <laughs> oh yeah, she's so terrified also of being interrupted. So I'm going to say to <laughs> and <laughs> And so enthusiasm, I think, is our natural state. And um, I think it's going to be tough for you to deep dive with people if if they're resistant and you're not open with your enthusiasm. I think it's going to fade out, almost like, like you're with enthusiasm to them like your parents are with guitar for you, you know? Well, you know, it's interesting, but... It's not like make it too big a thing kind of thing, right? Yeah. I mean, the only way to, to overcome... I think the only way to positively overcome resistance is, is through enthusiasm. And if you have trouble with enthusiasm, you can't lead. I mean, I think this is pretty common through all leaders. I mean, leadership is enthusiasm. you want to blow your mind, look up Michael Balmer... Michael Ballmer, he's a C- he was CEO of Microsoft, I think, after Bill Gates left. He's doing some intro. Mike, if you can look it up, and he's doing some intro. He's literally jumping up and down and screaming at the top of his lungs about Microsoft, doing some Steve Ballmer, intro to Ballmer. some...
2: Steve, I'm sorry? Steve Ballmer.
0: Ballmer, yeah. What did I say?
2: He uh, said Michael Ballmer. It's Steve Ballmer.
0: I'm oh, sorry, Steve, Steve Ballmer.
2: And I know the clip I mean, that you're talking of. It's... Uh...
0: It's like I was looking at that, and I'm like, good God. I mean, it's humbling. (laughs) I don't know (laughs) if it's saying, but it's humbling. Mm -hmm. And he is, like, crazy enthusiastic about stuff. I mean, I'm certainly very enthusiastic about what we're doing here. Maybe even more important than going from Windows 8 to Windows 8.1. But um, there is something somewhat irresistible about enthusiasm. But enthusiasm is also vulnerability because enthusiasm is asking for permission to lead. And there's very little that's more vulnerable in the world than asking for permission to lead. Because you're trying to lead your friendships. And I'm sure there are times when your friendships lead you and so on. You're asking to be the leader in this. But if you can't be enthusiastic, then you can't effectively ask for leadership and overcome resistance and so i would say that enthusiasm is the challenge for you yeah if people are genuinely enthusiastic i'll listen to almost anything i mean to to, it goes both ways you know it's it's the light side and the sith lord side i mean hitler was pretty goddamn enthusiastic in his speeches too (laughs) it's just Mm -hmm. you know it's alarming of course in general but It's alarming for a lot of people. Enthusiasm can go, I mean, cult leaders are enthusiastic. I mean, I'm sure I've never heard Jim Jones speak, but apparently there are recordings of the suiciding in Guyana after they shot the congressman. And um, enthusiasm, I think, is, is quite necessary if you want to take a leadership role. And if you want to take a leadership role in your friendships, then I think you need to have the vulnerability of enthusiasm. And I think that maybe at least in terms of how we're talking, I think that maybe be something to enhance in your communication.
5: Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I, I got a job at, I got a new job like four or five months ago. And that was like, when I got the job, that was already like three or four months into listening to your stuff a lot. And I've still been really listening to all your stuff. And I've, it's given me, like, a lot more uh, confidence and, like, a different approach of thinking about how things work and, like, all that. So, like, I, I've i been a lot more enthusiastic, especially there, and it kind of gave me that fresh start with new people that, like, don't already have a uh, preconceived idea of me. So... But if I, you commit to, no, to, to, if you want to commit
0: to your friendships, then don't try and be manipulative. And I'm not saying you are, but if I were in your shoes, I would uh, say something like this, which to me would be as non manipulative as possible. All manipulation is the avoidance of vulnerability. And to be truly vulnerable with your friends would be to say something like, I have these enthusiasm so i have these things that i really really care about in my life i care about philosophy i care about self-knowledge i care about truth i care i do care about the economy i am fascinated by it it's where my kids and your kids are going to have to grow up it matters and i want to talk to these about these things with you more i haven't done a great job of sharing how enthusiastic i am because it's scary because i sort of feel like if i say well i'm this enthusiastic about stuff that you're going to find it boring and we're we going to have an impasse or something. I don't know what's going to happen to the friendship. So I've been, I've been kind of playing it safe, kind of dipping your toe in, so to speak, or, or speaking a little and then backing off and so on. But it's not satisfying for me. It's bothering me because I think it could be something great that we could talk about. I don't have to talk about it all the time, but I feel like I'm talking about it and then I, I get scared. I, I'm scared. I'm bored of you. Or I'm boring you or, or you seem to indicate the lack of interest. And that's scary for me. You know, my parents weren't particularly helpful in fanning the flames of enthusiasm within me. And maybe I'm reproducing that here or whatever, but I'd like to talk more about this stuff. But I don't want to talk about it at the expense of your happiness or pleasure in the relationship because that would be selfish. So what's it like for you when I talk about this stuff? I mean, what happens for you?
5: When I listen to it? Again,
0: I'm just making it up, up off the top of my head, but it would be something like that. I think that would be pretty direct. Mm -hmm. but not win-lose. Yeah. And that's what I mean by if you are really committed to your friendships, then don't let any manipulation get between you, your friend, and the truth. Don't play it safe. Don't make decisions for the manipulation. Also, is trying to make decisions for other people. They may really welcome that kind of conversation, but you're not having that conversation with them. So you're denying them the opportunity to know who you really are. Right? Yeah, that's true. And that's what I mean by don't have these friendships that are half there. Have friendships where you're all there, which means you're honest, as honest as you can be about everything that is going on for you, without imposing a single demand on them, right? And this is real-time relationships. You, you, you talk about what you think and feel in the moment, and it's not a demand on other people. It's simply giving them the reality. You know, show them your paintings. They don't have to love them. <laughs> they don't even have to like them. They may hate them, but show them your paintings. Show them who you really are. If you have a problem with your friends, we always want to, we have a tendency to either want to minimize the problem or to dominate the conversation. You know, you don't listen to me when I talk about what's important to me. You know, like making them wrong and and so on. And, and that's, again, domination is an avoidance of vulnerability, which itself is an avoidance of honesty. And we avoid honesty for the simple reason that we avoid speaking in Japanese if we're raised in an English-speaking household. Because we don't. Know the language. And to really commit to your friends is to open your heart to them as wide as you can and give them the opportunity to respond. It's an amazing thing. It's an electric thing. It's an incredibly powerful thing to do in your friendships, in your relationships, to open your heart and to truly speak your mind with no demands or expectations or judgments of the other person. You know, if you've got issues with your parents, you sit down, talk to them, say, you know, this stuff's been troubling me. I, You know, I'm not saying you're bad people or anything, but I think I would have really loved guitar more, you know. And that doesn't mean that they did anything wrong or that anything has to change, but that's the true nature of your thoughts and experience, right?
5: Yeah, I, I definitely see myself when when you say that. I don't act when I do have these quote unquote like deep conversations with people. I don't open myself up as much as I kind of give them a statement about, I I don't know, maybe bring up something that just happened in the news, but then use it as like a, a way to insert my opinions on it. And that's manipulative. And like, I, I like expect them to take the opposing so that I can dominate them because I know I'm right or something I don't know mm. like
0: and also I don't know that they know how important it is to you
5: yeah because I don't open myself up
0: right and that again is the avoidance of rejection the avoidance of vulnerability and it is in the long run the avoidance of connection and most people would take a lifetime Of tiny frustration over one moment of clarity. Risking things for a moment of clarity. Which can turn into a lifetime of clarity and connection with people. But I think it's important to give your friends the respect of who you really are. And to hide yourself from your friends. I don't know. It's just kind of voluntarily locking yourself out of your own house. (laughs) Why? I mean I understand the emotional reasons and all that. But fundamentally, don't your friends want to know who you are all the way through? And don't you want to know who they are all the way through? I mean, if there's compatibility graded, if there's not, then find people who do value you deeply for who you are.
5: Yeah, I'm like shielding myself from the rejection, but then complaining about no one caring about what I say when I don't even actually tell them how important it is or open up. I'm like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense probably in the context of early childhood. Yeah. Which is where these habits in general get are formed. So, um, no, I, I, I sympathize. I, I really do. I sympathize. There's a, a funny thing about parenting that, in a way, there's nothing more dangerous than keeping your kids safe. You know, there's a lot of this... Helicopter parenting and and so on and and a lot of it comes from from women and uh, from moms, right? I mean, moms carry the kids in their wombs, they breastfeed them, they get up at night sometimes, often when they're sick and so on. I mean, there's a real connection and unity between mom and kid, which I don't have. I mean, I can't have and didn't grow her in my belly, but I'm very aware that. If I keep my daughter too safe, she's not going to learn how to handle risk. And if she can't handle risk, she can't succeed in life. And there is a lot of well-meaning hyper-caution in parenting these days. That's kind of crippling. And I'm not saying you crippled crippled. Right? I mean, this is a sort of more, more extreme scenario. Yeah. But if my daughter says, I love music, I love guitar. I mean, I'd be like, yeah, go for it. What can we do? What lessons do you need? Um, you know, what <laughs> can I write some lyrics? I mean, what do you? You know, what can we do? What can you do, or what can I help you do? Because I trust, I would trust my daughter enough to say to know that she, you know she. First of all, if she puts the ten thousand hours in, she's going to succeed. You know, as you keep pushing forward in excellence, more and more people are dropping away. So I would just say, look, if you're going to go for it, go for it. And if you're not going to go for it, that's fine. But you're going to commit, then commit. Because commitment will eliminate 99% of your competition. You just keep going and keep doing what you're doing, and people fall away. It's the old 10-year overnight success. And I trust my daughter enough to know that If she tries to make it and ends up not making it or doesn't like it or whatever, then she'll do something else. You know, I was never going to be a gold panner full time, but uh, I started off doing an English English degree. Then I went to two years of theater school and playwriting and acting. Uh, And then I did an undergraduate in history. And then I did a graduate degree in history, focusing on my master's on the history of philosophy. And then um, I got a job as a computer programmer and then I co-founded a company and then I was a writer um i was a novelist uh, and uh, i also put on a play i produced uh, and uh, and then i uh after co-founding the company i grew it and ran it for seven or eight years and sold it and then i took a year and a half off and did novel writing uh, and then i got another job and i started doing this show and, and it, it just it worked out i mean that's the That's the career path of somebody locked in a kaleidoscope who's currently having LSD visions and has a schizophrenic brain. I get that that's not a a linear path, but it all works out. As long as you take feedback from the market and from your heart, it's all going to work out. How the hell could I conceivably have guessed any of this stuff? But it's the commitment is the success because if you commit to something and you fail at it that is a success because you walk away without regrets and with all the lessons learned right yeah and so you when you commit you really can't fail you you really you really can't fail the only failure is the failure to commit that's that's all it is i mean i used to listen to this uh, uh podcast called the bugle with with uh Oh, the guy from The Daily Show has now got his own show. And um, his friend was making some joke and then faltered halfway through. And uh, the John guy was like, no, 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 no. Commit. Commit to the joke. Don't stop now. You can't back down. That's John Oliver saying that. It's, it was a real, it's true. You know, it's, it's, um, you know, that old Yoda thing, you know, I'll try. No. Do or do not, yeah. there is no try. And I think that that's very true. And that is the primal engine of the world is is commitment. You know, the people that build a hospital, they commit to building a hospital, and they damn well build the hospital. And it, all the problems along the way are crazy and horrible and so on. They just, they commit. They commit. And uh, uh, if you continue to commit, the people with lesser commitments fall away, and eventually you get the gold because you're the last person standing. You just commit. And um, you commit until you love it or hate it. That's what you do. You commit until you love it or hate it. And um, I was, I have some good acting ability. I was never going to be a great actor. And I, felt I couldn't be great at it. I just didn't want to do it. And for a variety of reasons, we don't have to get into here. But I'm so glad that I went to theater school and committed it. and And then did my acting afterwards and so on, I was so glad that I did that. Because there's no what-ifs, there's no regrets, and so on. And, And in terms of being honest with my friends, I'm very glad I did all of that. Very glad I did all of that. And I don't mean to hijack what you're talking about, but a plan B is planning to fail. And once you plan to fail, you will.
5: Yeah, I completely agree with that. And so plan to succeed.
0: And if you fail, plan to succeed at something else without regret. Without what ifs. Oh, I could have been a great actor. Nope. (laughs) I couldn't (laughs) have been a great actor for a variety of reasons, some of which are good and some of which are just whatever, right? I mean, I have so many words of my own, spending my life speaking other people's words would not have been a good use of my capacities. (coughs) So when it comes, you know, if if you grew up in a household where commitment was hedged, then I'm sure you grew up in a household without an excess of significant achievement uh, on the part of your parents and others around. And there's a whole clan of people who hedge their bets and don't commit and, live small. And I mean, I'm afraid if you're listening to this show, you're already not in that clan anymore. <laughs> it doesn't mean you can't, you know, have a great relationship with your family or anything, but that's just not where you're going to go. If you're listening to this show, um, you want to break out, right? You want to launch, you want to be a rocket, you want to get someplace, you want to do something big. That's just the nature of the beast. That's what the show is all about. Yeah. And, uh, and so my, my suggestion is, Disallow yourself the avoidance of manipulation. Don't have that in your tool belt. The moment you're tempted to manipulate, recognize that it's an insult to both of you and an insult to honesty. And grit your teeth and speak your mind.
5: Yeah. I just wanted to add, like, I I never really self-reflected as much as, like, after hearing, like, your real time relationships. I listened through that. And like, uh, my mom would always like be there to listen to me and I could talk with her about stuff. And like I said, like the, how she'd respond to my motives in like that discouraging way, but like trying to be helpful. But then there was like my dad would, which would just like, he would just, I, he never really like talked to me about anything. And he still doesn't like he just he'll insert himself in my life when he has to prove that I need to do something better or I'm gonna do something wrong if I keep doing this it this way you know what I'm saying like it and it- I feel like very threatened by it almost like I'm afraid to talk to him because like I never have conversations with him and and whenever he does talk it's because he's telling me oh you know you you shouldn't do music or you shouldn't uh you shouldn't quit your job or you you shouldn't go do that you know and there's never like a well why did you do that or why do you want to do this so it, it, it's like a, fr- a frustrating relationship like that and like both my parents are to that like that to an extent and
0: do your parents have a life that you want
5: um i do i mean not in all like not definitely not in most areas i mean I, I liked that my mom was home when I was growing up. Like that was really nice. No, to no, have I, that. I don't
0: mean. I don't mean that. I just mean yeah. in, in a sort of larger sense. I mean, <clears throat> if you get your parents' life, will you be happy?
5: Oh no, no, they're uh, okay. See, yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's
0: that's important, and it's yeah. so fundamentally important that I I really need to underscore this. Where, where's a place you don't want to go
5: in the world? Like a physical place, yeah, uh the Middle East right now, or Africa, I guess <laughs> seems a little uh dangerous, and uh Liberia, let's say, yeah,
0: all right I'm not comparing your parents' life to an outbreak of Ebola, but just <laughs> as an analogy, I'm like, hey, man, organizing a trip to e- to, to Liberia are you in? <laughs> And you'd be like, ah, uh, not so much really. i be like, okay, but but here's what you need to do to get to Liberia, right? Here's all the steps. I'm gonna help you, right? Because it looks like you're not facing the right direction to start heading towards Liberia, and you're also not packing like the stuff you're gonna need. Some mosquito repellent. You're gonna need some flamethrowers uh, to clean the surfaces. Um, you, you you know you you got and. But the, the reality is, does it really matter what advice I'm giving you on how to get to Liberia if you don't want to go to Liberia?
5: Yeah, that's true. Yeah.
0: Right. So before you take people's advice, ask if you want their life. Because whatever advice they're giving yeah. you, either it's the advice that they have themselves followed, which if they've ended up in a life you don't want, you don't want to follow that advice. Or they haven't even followed their own advice, in which case they're advising you on something they've never even experienced. And especially if they're not saying, do the opposite of what I did. If they're not even open about that. then So under no circumstances should you take advice from someone whose life you don't want. And again, I know nitpickers are going to be like, oh, so you don't want to be a dentist. So that means you don't have to. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about big life decisions. Right. If if people are telling you don't follow your passions, hedge your bets, keep it as a hobby but don't ever commit and they have lives you don't want I'm afraid that their advice is not going to be, be helpful to put it as nicely as possible, right? Yeah. Don't evaluate the advice, first evaluate the person. If it's a trip to Liberia, their advice on how to get to Liberia isn't going to help you if you don't want to go to Liberia. And if if you don't want the life that someone has, then don't take their advice on how to get there. In fact, the opposite rule might be helpful, right? Yeah. So if I take your advice and invert it, (laughs) then I might end up with a completely different kind of life. That sounds pretty good. And it's, it's tough, you know, because people, everybody wants to give advice But very few people want to live a life that can evoke admiration or envy. And envy is a perfectly helpful emotion. Envy a thin person and lose weight. I mean, it's fine. It's fine as a motivator. It doesn't last too long, but it's not bad to get you started. But everybody wants to give advice, and a few people want to evoke advice. That's not a good way of putting it. Um, Advice should not be... A push scenario. It should be a pull scenario. In other words, find someone you admire and ask them how they got there. Or find someone whose life is enthusiastic for you, is is something you're enthusiastic about. Not that you want their exact life, but something like it. And find out how they got there. In other words, people should be pursuing you for advice. Whereas a lot of people want to just give advice in a push environment without having the life of excitement and and challenge and triumph that would make just about anybody want to listen to what they have to say does does that make any sense
5: no that that really helps that's yeah and I, so
0: again honesty with your dad would be like uh dad i just feel like we don't really talk about anything that's that important and i also feel like I'm not sure that I want the life that you have, but I'm still getting a lot of advice about how to live. And I I don't know how to square that. So, you know, as honest as you can be. Yeah. Which is scary, sadly, for a lot of people in a lot of situations. But uh, I don't know. The, The only fundamental commitment is to the truth. Everything else is about yourself, about your thoughts, your feelings that's the only fundamental commitment that there is. Yeah. I'm not committed to philosophy. I'm just committed to honesty, which I generally achieve. Uh, not always, but, and when I don't, I try to fix it. Um, but, uh, commit to honesty with yourself, with others and, uh, reject, manipulation manipulation is uh, a surrender to the prejudices of others
5: yeah i've always like tried manipulating even my own life just to avoid the thing instead of just being honest and upfront like i i want to move out as soon as i can just because i want to get away from it instead of just like confronting it while i'm here i don't even try
0: well, once you commit to honesty, you'll be astounded at what it will do with your life. And I think that's really the only thing that – so the only thing. It's a very big thing. But um, I'm afraid i have going to have to wind this up because my voice is – it's better, but it's no. still um, running kind of rough. So thank you so much for all your calls. I've got you a minor help, correction.
5: You help so much. Thank you. I really appreciate
0: it. You're very welcome. Very welcome. And uh, I hope you'll listen back to all this. I will. Um had a correction, as I was talking about Socrates recently, and I said that Socrates went to the Oracle of Delphi. That's incorrect. Thank you for people who have corrected me on that. Uh, Socrates, it was a friend of Socrates who went to the Oracle of Delphi and asked who was the wisest man in Athens and then told Socrates that. It was not Socrates who went directly to the Oracle. It was a friend of Socrates who told him that. Uh, so I just wanted to put out that correction uh, according to the story doesn't materially change the story, but it's an important detail, I guess. So thank you to those who have uh, sorted that out for me and uh, appreciate uh, having the opportunity to fix that up. And um, thanks for a great, great show. Of course, um, we will put uh, the links to the books discussed here below. Please use the Amazon affiliate links, um, which we have um, in the description bars below the videos. Um, I think, Mike, there are some short URLs for those, if you can dig those up in a sec. Um, and at freedomainradio.com slash donate to the show always needs your help to get by and to survive. And, um, I think it's hugely important what we're doing for the world. We are sorry that we're so booked far out for these call in shows, but I really want to make sure we give people the proper time and attention, uh, that they really, really deserve for being so honest and open in a public space. So have yourselves a wonderful week. Uh, everyone, Mike, do we have, sorry, Mike, do we have that, uh, URL for the Amazon link?
2: Yeah, the link I just pasted is all bollocksed up, but it's FDRURL.com, Amazon US or Amazon uh, CA or Amazon UK, depending on which Amazon you want to go to, country
0: specific, but
2: FDRURL.com forward slash Amazon and then US, UK or CA for Canada.
0: Yeah, use, use that for your shopping. I mean, it's uh, we get a couple of bucks and uh, it's no additional cost to you. But as always, the most important thing uh, for us is subscriptions and donations and uh, sharing uh, of the uh, videos. Uh, So thanks, everyone, for a great, great call. We will talk to you Wednesday.